0: Tēnā kotu and hello everybody, welcome to the Lento Intervention podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland.
1: And g'day, my name is Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Gungaloo Country in Queensland. And before we dive into our conversation today, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land,
0: sea and community. The Lento Intervention is an Australasian educational and advocacy platform dedicated to raising awareness about the current climate and health crisis
1: and on this podcast we invite guests to chat about topics that will inspire you to take action to improve your own health and the health of the planet
0: so please subscribe to and share this podcast and visit our website for the full show notes
1: and don't forget to buy us a coffee if you'd like to support our work
0: and here we are rounding up season two with our 50th episode for the year now that's a milestone in itself
1: that is yep absolutely it's been a hell of a year uh but we've made it so that's a positive
0: a very very big year yep yep i think uh you know depending where in new zealand australia you live um you know we've all had varying experiences of covid related lockdowns restrictions uh but we can definitely agree that we've all been impacted in one way or another uh and that's made this year even more challenging
1: yeah absolutely um but i think it has been a privilege to be able to put out 50 episodes for our community we've got a wonderful little community of supporters and i'm just so appreciative of that so that's kind of been uh one of my guiding lights this year when things have been a bit rough
0: yeah so i think you know we can start off with a big thank you to our listeners um you know they're not just listeners they're supporters of the show we've we've had a lot of uh coffees bought for us to help support the show uh but you know we don't we don't have the biggest uh group of listeners but we know we've got a very engaged group and that's and like you say i think that's that's positive it it sort of inspires us to do more because we know we're inspiring our listeners so if anything a big thank you to to our listeners So last year, our final episode was effectively a review of the year that was, Um, you know, key outtakes from a lot of conversations that we had. So, But this year, we're taking a very different approach. Um, We are, in effect, taking an overview of where we're actually at, um, which is also a reflection of a lot of the conversations we've had with a lot of our guests this year.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've covered some really important science this year regarding the climate crisis and uh, our pretty fraught relationship with nature. Um, but it's also really important to acknowledge that human element, that human face of the issue. I mean, this is something that's going to affect everyone, and it already has for some of us pretty profoundly too. Um, so we wanted those, sh- like those stories, to be shared. Um, it's important that we share those stories. Telling our stories is you a know, fundamental part of being human. That's what will help shape our future. Um, and as we've already mentioned, we've got a really passionate group, passionate community of listeners um, whose voices and stories deserve to be heard. So the more we talk about this, the more we get those stories out there, the more we can bring about change. And this is what this final episode is all about this year.
0: And it's about relatability, and I think that's also important. You know, this year we've covered five documentaries, and documentaries are storytelling, and you know that's 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 a part of it. We've also interviewed PhD students, which we've never done before. A, a wonderful group, six of them, uh, this year, and it's made us realise that, you know, each person has a story to tell. A lot of those stories can be quite personal. And as you will find out with our with our contributors in in this show, they are the kind of questions that you would not know to ask. Uh, even more so, they're the kind of questions you would feel you feel a bit awkward or, or embarrassed to ask. And. We've done that, <laughs> um, and and we're thankful for that. We've we've got nineteen contributions uh, contributions to this show. Uh, we could have had more. We could have had more people, but we can't have this being a five hour episode. Uh, this is already well over two hours, but um, it's it's a wonderful mixture of past guests that we've had this year and last year, uh, some of our listeners, and even a couple of people who have had a coerce to come to come on the show.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I'm really looking forward to sharing these with our listeners um i hopefully there'll be a lot of stories that resonate with people out there and you know you can take away something different from all of the stories that we share so um yeah i just hope this is a meaningful episode for everyone i'm incredibly proud of this episode that we're putting together for you and all of the stories that everyone is sharing
0: so whilst we 're rambling, we promise we won 't be taking over the show. Um, it is all about our contributors, but just one thing so our approach is that um, nineteen contributions we 've grouped some of those contributors into various groups, um, more relating to i guess some themes that that we found it's important to note that each of these contributions, uh, whilst we recorded the vast majority of them, two of them were submitted via an audio file. Um, we did not pose questions, we did not prompt, and it was purposely done so, so that each story was, you know, my brief to each person was just, just speak, just tell me your story, and you'll find that a lot of them are raw, that are they are deep, um, and and they're unique, and each of these 19 stories are unique. So we have found some themes, we've uh, grouped them, we'll we'll sort of briefly comment on some of them as we're going through. We will introduce each and every one of them as we go through as well. But what we've also done to help you while listening is if you refer to your show notes, either in the the app that you're listening to this on, the platform, or even on our website, we'll have a breakdown of each person um, and the timestamp. It's not so that you can skip, any of of the contributors, listen to them all, but it's more if you want to go back and hear a particular person again, because maybe that was the story that you resonated with, or perhaps that's the story that, you know, you want to pass on to someone else and say, hey, listen to that one. You know, that's really what I can relate to. So that's just a little bit of admin. Look at the show notes. We'll have a breakdown of each and every one of them. So to kick off, before we introduce our first speaker, I actually want to read an extract from a book. Um, it is um, actually, she is one of our contributors, and she will be a little bit later on. Uh, Sally Gillespie, she authored uh, Climate Crisis and Consciousness. We have interviewed her earlier this year, we've spoken about the book, it's on our recommended reading list. But to kick off and set the scene, um, I'm going to read a part paragraph, Sally, I hope you're okay with this, uh, from the introduction in her book. And this will, like I say, set the scene. Eco-anxiety, eco-grief and eco-despair are commonly acknowledged and written about in the more progressive media outlets. However, the problem for many of us remains that initiating and sustaining conversations about climate crisis is difficult. Sex is an easier dinner table uh, topic than melting glaciers. Too often, the conversation halts with uneasy jokes about rising sea levels and a quick change of subject. People are left stranded, often not knowing what to think because of the lack of opportunity to talk freely about the confusions, fears, frustrations and griefs that are part of the climate crisis territory. When non-engagement becomes the norm, it not only stymies action, but also stifles a liveliness that springs from consciously engaging with the world as it is and ourselves as we are. So on that note, Emma, who's our first contributor?
1: Yeah, so first up, we hear from Megan Grant, a past guest of the show. Megan is an environmental scientist currently undertaking her PhD with the Drift Lab. And here she shares a very powerful story of eco grief and what her future now looks like in this climate change world.
2: The climate crisis facing the world right now impacts us all in a variety of different ways. For me, I'm suffering from eco grief. For those that don't know, eco grief can be defined as a psychological response to loss caused by climate change or environmental destruction, similar in a sense to depression or anxiety or other mental illnesses. It can make you feel hopeless, distressed, fearful or angry, especially when it feels like there's nothing you can do to fix things. Of course, I feel all of those things often on a daily basis, but there's more to it than that. Eco-Grief has changed my perception on one of the biggest things that almost all people go through. So, to enlighten you on this, I'd like to tell you a story. When I was a child, I had an amazing upbringing. I lived in a sleepy seaside town on the central north coast, and I had a large backyard with trees to climb, chickens to feed, I had a dog and a cat. I had a sandpit and a tree house, a swing set and a trampoline. My brother and I rode bikes around the streets and would venture into the bushland at the end of the road we lived in. We would create little bushwalks and pretend to be rangers or mountain bikers or adventurers. Of course, all of this was possible because of my parents. They were and still are incredible. They'd take me to soccer practice, circus school, cello lessons, music camp. We'd go on bushwalks, road trips, nights away, even a few overseas trips. I went to good schools. My parents cared about my education. They'd help with my homework. Mum's an amazing cook. We'd always have homemade biscuits, slices and cakes in the house. Mum taught me all that I know about cooking, as well as sewing and other homemaking activities. My dad was great around the house. He made my brother and I a tree house. He taught me basic woodworking skills. He taught me how to sail. But most of all, my parents are kind, caring and loving. So as a child, my opinions on parenthood were 100% influenced by my own parents. I wanted what they had. I wanted to be the perfect mother to my very own child. I wanted to teach and nurture a child in the same way they nurtured me. I remember thinking of the sort of parent that I would be, how I would be loving and caring and open. I thought about how many children I wanted, one at a minimum, but so that the first wouldn't get too lonely, I'd have another, maybe two years apart, so that they could be friends and develop social skills outside of school and play with each other just like my brother and I had when we were children. I wanted two girls, but really, I would have been happy with whatever. I remember in high school, around grade nine, when I wrote a list of names that I would like to call my children. Joanna or Cassia, Finn or Bo. When I got older, grade 11 and 12, and then into university, where I studied a degree in environmental science, continued on into my honours, where I studied plastics in seabird nests, and then into a PhD where I now study the impacts of plastic ingestion on seabirds, I began to learn more about the world and what was happening to it. Climate change, biodiversity loss, pollution, famine, overpopulation, the list goes on. That dream of being a parent slowly slipped out of my grasp, Slow at first, like I was trying to suppress it. Like I didn't want to listen to the rational part of my brain. But deep down, I knew that being a parent was no longer becoming a realistic idea. With all that I knew about the world, how could I responsibly bring a child into it? How could I subject an innocent child to what we are already facing now, but on a scale much worse than what we currently know? How could I responsibly bring a child into a dying planet? It would be irresponsible of me to do that. I would be an irresponsible parent. One that didn't care enough for their child and their future. One that was selfish, putting my want for a child above their needs as a human. I often wonder what would have happened if I had become a lawyer or an accountant Or gone into any other profession other than environmental science. Would I still have had that same conscience? Maybe I would have been naive and ignorant about the world's increasing problems and blindly had children, only learning about the oncoming destruction much later, too late. Even now, if I were to drop what I was doing straight away and go back to square one and start learning something completely different, take on an entirely different career, something far removed from environmental science, I still wouldn't be able to go back to before, to that blind ignorance. I can't turn away from what I already know. I can't turn my back on the planet. So I'm not having children. I won't get to be a mother. I can't live out my childhood dreams and have the two children and perfect life that I always thought I'd have. Deep down, there's a tiny part of me that still wants that life. But I can't bring myself to honor that. I can't do that to them. It's not that I don't want children, I do. There are times when it hits me so hard, it stops me in my tracks. Last weekend, I had just finished cleaning the house and was getting dinner ready and thought to myself, This is what my mother did. I would probably make a good mother too. But then I stopped, the smile that had formed from that thought faded from my face and a pang of sadness washed through me. This happens often. So it's not that I don't want children. It's that I've chosen not to have children. Am I envious of others who have children? No but maybe I'm envious of their reckless abandon to their blindness towards this issue or to what they don't know and what I sometimes wish I didn't know. It's strange talking about this to all of your listeners, to thousands of people I don't know. I only told my parents about this a few months ago, even though I've known this for many years now. Why didn't I tell them sooner, you may be thinking, I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want to break their hearts. So while eco grief has affected me so much so that I've chosen not to have children, it's also affected my relationships and the people I love. It's slowly spreading like an untreatable disease. Some people may think that my ideas are too radical or maybe that I'm being too cautious. Maybe I am, but you know, maybe i'm not at all either way if you want kids go out and do that i'm not here to stop you my goal of sharing this was not to change your opinions but simply to voice my own as i said earlier eco grief can take many forms and can impact people in many different ways and this is what eco grief has done to me
0: So our next contributor is Dr. Mike Joyce, someone you need absolutely no introduction to. We've had him on the show a number of times. He is a senior researcher at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And uh, here's his story. I kind of,
3: I live in this world where I'm torn. I, I, I have a lot of guilt because of the lifestyle that I've lived in, the age that I am, and that I live in a comfortable house that I own. I don't drive much anymore. I don't eat meat. I've kind of made the changes, the easy changes, I guess. Um, And and so I'm in this dilemma of uh, realizing that we humans have been around for 300,000 years in this little kind of end game that we're in at the moment where we've gone crazy and, and I'm part of that crazy party and I was unaware of it for such a long time so i'm kind of i'm in a i'm in a uh, a battle with myself half the time um, i've just had a, i've just had 3 days working on a an old wooden boat 89 year old wooden boat that i own and and um, you know the the pleasure of being able to do some hard physical work on that we've got it out of the water to to do its annual kind of maintenance and and just to rest my brain a little bit from having to deal I mean, the trouble with being a, a an environmental researcher is that you research always you're always you know having to deal head-on with with what's happening on the planet and so there's no hiding from the reality and it's a it's a tough place to be and so I do need that space away I do I don't think I could live I don't think I could survive without this old sailboat and being able to get out on the water and Something happens in my head a switch switches when I sail out of the harbour and get out on the ocean and, and yeah, luckily I can... I think it's because I have to deal with the reality. It's a pretty wild piece of water around the Cook Strait and so my brain has to switch to a different mode into a survival mode, I guess, and and that that helps me to get by. Um, that's, That's just kind of how I... How I survive, I guess, and not everyone can do that. But I guess everyone has to have a has to have a um a, an escape me- mechanism, something that takes them away from this stuff because it is it is hard work and it's it's something you can't unknow once you know it. And and I guess um that's that's the personal space for me is is just trying to trying to live with myself and and in some ways become a um uh, like a, a, I'm, at a, I'm at a football game, I'm, I'm in the crowd. Pulling back and just watching what's happening rather than feeling like I'm out there in the middle playing the game is important as well. And it, it, it's bizarre, but it's um, taken away some of the anger and, and uh, intensity of my anger about the state of fresh waters in New Zealand to realise that there's much bigger issues and I can... It, yeah, it's, it's pretty weird that that that, that 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 something that's even worse than that um, can kind of um, make it easier for me to deal with those kind of issues day to day. And I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess, in a fortunate space of be, being um, childless, um, which was kind of a decision that we made not to have kids because of knowing what was happening on the planet but i really feel for for kids and for parents who have kids and thinking about how their future's going to be it must be really really hard um and you know so i guess i feel like i'm i'm i've been let off pretty easy and um it's easier for me than it is for younger people and for the other ones that i see around me so um yeah hats off to people with kids because it must be so much harder yeah
1: Next, we hear from another Adrift Lab team member and previous guest of the show, Lillian Stewart. Lil talks about the confronting reality that she has to face daily as an environmental scientist and PhD candidate and what she does and what we can all do to enact change.
4: Over the last three years, I've had the privilege to work among some of the best scientists in this field and have had the chance to experience places so many dream about. On field days where I survey some of the most pristine and untouched coastlines on earth, I find it easy to see why we must protect what we love and what gives us life. Although it's not all tropical islands and Tasmanian hideaways, because my job also takes me to places where tons and tons of our waste items are rapidly washing up on coastlines. They entrap, entangle and compromise so much of the life that makes these places unique and rich. It's easy to appreciate good deeds when we are presented with the absolute best But when you're standing on a beach before countless tons of plastic and other rubbish, you can't help but feel sick for how little we've done and how quickly we need to change. This is the absolute worst. I love my job as a researcher with all my heart, but I won't shy away from admitting that I experience a lot of ecological grief. When deciding on what to talk about for my climate story, I wasn't exactly sure how to tackle it, but everything I came up with led back to the same single thought. In an age where we face a growing number of global problems, I firmly believe that we as individuals can also achieve so much to be part of the solution. During a recent project documenting plastic waste in a local seagull population, one thing became particularly apparent. The items I was finding were not unrecognisable plastic shards that had travelled from faraway places, but instead were recognisable items that I had likely used in the past and continue to see used all around me. I was working with unnatural items that could have very well come from myself or the people around me. And this led me to be even more mindful about what I consume and my behaviour around actually being responsible for the fate of what I use. I do firmly believe that living my life with the aim to have as little impact as possible is something I can do to ease the uncomfortable feeling of not knowing if I did enough with what I had and when I had the chance. Although I am unbelievably proud of the position I'm in and I feel privileged to contribute to the growing amount of research in the field of plastic pollution, I believe that the impact that I have through my everyday choices will be of significant value. I don't consider my day-to-day life anything particularly different or special from anyone else or preach that in order to live sustainably, we must all cut out plastic from our lives instantly and completely, as this simply just isn't realistic. I live on a student income in suburban Hobart, My partner and I share a one-bedroom townhouse with a garden space smaller than most driveways. We shop mostly at Woolworths or Coles in an aim to keep our shopping costs to a minimum. I tell you this because I want people to understand that we don't have to be anything special or make earth-shattering changes to our lives in order to be impactful. We've built two small garden beds in our front yard where we grow some of our own produce as much as the space allows. We shop with mindfulness about reducing plastics, including things like bringing our own produce and shopping bags, which I am happy to see more and more people around me are doing. With all the small changes I've been able to make over time, I'm able to comfortably do things like plastic-free July, something I'd encourage everyone to try, and live as sustainably as I can with what I have. Although I still drive the car I first bought after high school, I aim to make my next one electric, and I've been saving towards that goal for a little while now. I have become acutely aware that every choice I make can have an impact. I'm living a life that strives for it to be as small and as positive as possible. I find reassurance and joy in knowing this, particularly when I'm experiencing the discomfort of eco-grief. You could say that this has become a coping mechanism for me. Although it may feel insignificant, and trust me, I've felt the same time and time again, the longer I stick to my belief, and unfortunately the cliche, that even the little things can have a big impact. This gives me the feeling that a wave of meaningful change is on the horizon. So here's to living our best lives in every way that we can.
0: Following on, we have Dr. Jean Lavers, a name you've heard a number of times. Um, and that's because she's the head of a drift lab, uh, which is the research group focusing on seabird and marine plastic research, as well as a lecturer in marine science at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies in Tasmania. We are really hoping to have her as a guest on the show next year. Um, And amongst a number of points that she raises, she also talks about that extra burden that she feels uh, as the head of the
4: lab.
5: I don't know. uh, When I look back at 2021, I can't help but think that it all started on this one particular day where uh, People were being a little bit hopeful that 2020 was over um, that the vaccine was coming um, uh, that there was like hope and light on the horizon. And I remember being on, I think it was Twitter and I saw this, um, this funny cartoon that was basically not really a cartoon. It was actually a black and white photo taken from like the forties or the fifties. And it was a man on a beach. And I think he was catching a Frisbee or something and a dog was jumping up and it was like, um, just the way the photo had frozen frame was about to like bite him in the, um, the nether regions. Um, and it kind of had like, he was missing the Frisbee and it was, so that was like twenty twenty passing us by. And then it was like the dog coming up and biting him very, very unexpectedly right in the ouch. Um, and it kind of was like you know people were relishing taking a moment to catch their breath and say wow this truly awful year where it changed everything was over and maybe just maybe there was 2021 on the horizon that was going to be this like glimmer of hope and so much different and better and i saw this image on social media and i thought maybe it's not maybe Maybe this is actually going to be longer than we thought. And as the head of the lab, I kind of had to reflect on that for a moment and think about how do we buffer that? How do I keep my team going when there were already a lot of cracks showing? There were folks who were coming to me on a very regular basis, indicating to me that they were really struggling to keep that momentum up to feel motivated to feel inspired to do the things that that matter and make a difference. And um, I don't know why that sticks with me. But that was like really, really, you know, like a week into 2021. And I just kind of had this moment of maybe this won't be different. Maybe this will be more of the same. And if it is, how do I cope with that? How does everyone else cope with that? And, and and how do we sustain this in the longer term? That's where my story for this year begins. And it kind of has been that year of, it's been a year of, sustaining and surviving and trying to find those moments of resilience and figuring out what works in the new, I don't even want to call it the new normal. Cause like none of us hope it will stay like this. Um, but it has been really hard um, and it's magnified a challenge that I've always um, that I've been really grappling with for a number of years now, which is, You know, this was, this was my hope. This was my dream for myself was to one day have my own lab and to recruit like the best and the brightest, the next generation of young up and coming inspiring scientists and to play some small minuscule part in, in giving them the tools and resources and skills that they needed to go out into the big blue world and, and make a difference and. It's been a real reckoning and a, and a real, real genuine struggle of mine over the last, um, 10 years or so to realize that I still think on some level, I do that and I certainly try really hard, but on other levels, the projects that I run and the topics that we deal with, um, are really devastating, um, Marine pollution. Uh, and, and and the prospect for our marine environment is not a rosy outlook. And so what it basically means is like everything you're reading each day, everything you're talking about in your lab group meetings, um, everything you're writing about and talking about at conferences and stuff is generally fairly n- negative in tone. And how do you counterbalance that? There's so much you can try to do. Um, that I can try to do to keep my team's spirits lifted But the fact of the matter is is that the the negative and the sad stuff No matter how hard I try and I do try the negative greatly greatly outweighs you know my What often seem like pathetic efforts to keep people's spirits lifted? Um, and so that was already really challenging for me and I was kind of reconciling the fact that I had this dream of the perfect lab inspiring the next generation and being part of that process and seeing my young students go out and prosper and be part of the world Um, and then I had to deal with the reality of working on this topic and in this discipline and maybe that wasn't going to be what I thought and then 2020 happened And then 2021 happened and now we're looking down the barrel of 2022 and I just don't know anymore. Um, And I feel like that's really all I can and am willing to say is like, I just don't know and I feel an incredible sense of powerlessness and we keep coming back to one thing. Which is good science only really happens when you surround yourself with good people. When things get this uncertain, this shaky, this hard, this unpredictable, you just genuinely don't know anymore. You come back to the core of things, which is good science has the best possible chance of happening when you're surrounding yourself with good people. Other things you probably can't control but the people you surround yourself with, maybe you can. And so that's where we're at, that's who we are.
1: Next, we hear from Professor Corey Bradshaw from Flinders University, whose main research focus is global change ecology. We've been incredibly fortunate to have Corey as a guest on the show previously. And here, Corey discusses how he and his family deals with humanity's potential ghastly future.
6: Corey Bradshaw, Flinders University. I'm the Matthew Flinders Fellow of Global Ecology here on Ghana land in Adelaide. Uh, Obviously, working in the biz of global environmental change, and when I mean change, it it basically means bad. (laughs) So very few of the things that I study are going in the right direction, and the right direction, of course, is, uh, you know, fewer extinctions, not more, and climate mitigation, not worsening climate, and um, l- more political stewardship, not less. I and mean, we don't see any of that. So for many years, I've struggled to find a balance between work and and my personal life and my family life, and I failed catastrophically to the point where I suffered a series of quite serious depressions um, that were brought on in part by my, my, my job. And, you know, I've, I've dealt with that. I've sought help. You know, medication was involved, and you know, I feel that I've got some semblance of stability now, and I deal with that in, in various ways. I mean, I have a small farm. So that takes up a lot of extra time. There's a lot of physical work. We make wine, uh, my wife and I, and uh, that creativity that has nothing to do with science or politics or anything else is, is a way I can kind of escape. I do, I do uh, mixed martial arts, and that is kind of like meditation for me because during those periods, and I train you know five times a week, I am not thinking about anything but the training, the technique, and that really clears my brain and uh, allows me to come down from the angst. I, I've also, you know, done some silly things like <laughs> I stopped listening to the news, even the, even the good news, because I'm bombarded by that anyway through social media. But, you know, just listening to the radio, I find quite depressing. Um, it's not just because of depressing reporting, it's because we're not actually seeming to recognize all of the elements of this complex adaptive system that are creating the perfect storm of inability to deal with the problems that are, that are accelerating. Um, it's going the other way. And so we have more and more problems. But we have less and less political will and capacity to deal with them. And I find that very discouraging. So I'll just tune out and listen to audiobooks on the way to work. Um, and that's, a, again, another form of escapism. But living on a farm present, presents, especially in this part of southern Australia, Adelaide Hills, lots of bush, therefore bushfires and you know as the last few years have pain painfully demonstrated we're always sort of this far away from catastrophe and those the expansive um, nature of those fires the frequency as well as the severity means that it's it's a matter of when it's not a matter of if and You know, I see my daughter, who's 14 now, who's grown up in this house on the farm and everything she knows is that farm and the animals on it and everything else. And while I can sort of see the logical aspect, well, if it burns down, we'll rebuild and and start over and we have some insurance and although we might not be able to afford that for very much longer. uh, But her entire being is wrapped up in that place and, and she's, she's, you know not just anxious, but she's, she's very afraid of anything about fire. And so when those fires happen around our region, and even if it doesn't look like they're going to come anywhere near us, she, she really expresses that anxiety. And I feel that. And that's not just in the day-to-day, it's also the aspect of her future. So, you know, she's 14, she's starting to think about even university at this stage and career, and, and she's, she's gaining a and individuality and uh, her, her awareness of global issues is quite strong, not just because, you know, I'm her parent, but also because she's she's not stupid. She reads and she's very clear that our generation screwed things up and that she has her generation has to deal with it. And that makes her angry. And it also makes her worried that what's the point? You know, um, so I think I adopt some of that anxiety vicariously through her. And it's gone from me being, you know, the parent of the the small child worried about their future to seeing her worried about her own future, and absorbing that myself. So I, I'm I always struggle to find that balance and to try to, in a way, teach her how to disassociate to some extent. And she does martial arts as well, <laughs> so and she's she's very good at it. So um, that gives me some satisfaction that um, even if you know bad things happen, she'll she'll have some tools and a toolbox to deal with them so you know the anxiety that I see in my daughter you know I also see it at work in the lab you know my students express this uncertainty of the future it's been exacerbated by COVID obviously you know restrictions to movement but you know COVID and zoonoses are of course a product of environmental change themselves this isn't the last time we've seen a pandemic that's for sure and in many ways, COVID might be one of the least uh, problematic in terms of both mortality and restrictions in, in the future, because of you know the destruction of nature and the release of many of those pathogens that shouldn't otherwise get into the human population, but they will and they have. You know, epidemiologists have been projecting a COVID or worse type pandemic for decades, and it, and it did happen. It will happen again. So there's that plus. The anxiety of their futures—you know—it's becoming more and more difficult for them to achieve gainful employment in the in the disciplines. Uh, that's also wrapped up in population size, but few people seem to make that connection. And then, um, to top that all off, they 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 have the normal anxiety about climate change and extinctions, and because they're studying biodiversity in some form in my lab they they see that things are not going in the right direction so they almost feel impotent about doing anything positive i remember when i was that age and starting i had grand visions of you know fixing everything and i've shifted my mind set for for self preservation purposes mainly from we can fix this to let's make it a little bit less shit than it's otherwise going to be Uh, It's a a real munch. In fact, it, it saved me a lot of angst because I realize now I can't change the future. I can't save these species. I can't change people's minds. But if some of my work leads to a slightly less ghastly future than it would otherwise be, then I think I can feel justified that I'm doing my best. And I, I take that approach too with my daughter. If I can, if anything that I do makes her future just a little bit less worse, <laughs> to use a double negative, then then I feel justified as a that I did my job as a parent.
0: The way I feel now is exactly the way I felt after I listened to, because I did the live recordings with them, and just listening to them there and then, and actually watching them talk about this. It really hit home and. You know how much, you know, there's a lot of commonality. there's there's a lot of words that they all use. They all used eco grief, eco anxiety. They all spoke about how much they really feel the impact now to me. And this is an observation now done, done overall after having listened to all 19 of these. We've grouped our scientists together here. Right. And. For me, I always used to think that, you know, scientists, they're the ones that undertake the field work. They are the ones who truly observe and study the change. Uh, They live and breathe this every day. Mike spoke about that. Corey spoke about it. They all did. Every day, it's on their minds. And I would have thought that in their position, they would be the ones that would know how to cope with it. And they ones that would potentially even be desensitized from it. Yet, they seem to be the ones most affected by it. And that's, I don't know what to say. Is that awful? Is that a good thing? Does it make them want to do more? I i don't know what that means in, in that big respect, but it really goes to show how much they're feeling impacted by it. And I think that's that's a key important thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean... <laughs> to be a scientist and they're at the coalface of these issues and they've been ringing these alarm bells for so long and to not have anyone listen to them I mean we've heard them right we've heard the alarm bells but we haven't really listened to them that would just be so incredibly devastating and I'm just really thankful of the work that they do And, and you raise a really good point there Ben like it's So important to remember that these people just, you know, they're not robots in lab coats. They're real people. They have real emotions. They have to deal with this really heavy shit, basically. And we need to acknowledge that far more. So I'm so appreciative of their work. You and I, Ben, we've both studied various, you know, sustainability and climate change adaptation subjects this year. And just being confronted with that data day in day out, it's it's really depressing sometimes. But to actually be leading this research and having to deal with that on a personal level, um, I couldn't imagine. So yeah, I'm just so appreciative of the work that they do, and I'm sorry that we're still not listening to them the way that we should be. So incredibly thankful.
0: And Corey's uh, sort of one final statement really wraps it all up. I mean, for him, it's that big mindful shift, you know, rather than let's fix things, let's make things a little less shit than it's going to be. Yeah. And that's a reality check. Um, You know, the other thing is the likes of Lil and and Megan, and we've had other wonderful PhD students, you know, we've we've commented on how exciting it is to have cool scientists, young, you know, women coming through as well. There's a blend and so on. But why do you want to be a scientist if you're faced with this? Um, and that's some of the, the the realities that they're facing in their young lives, you know. And and that's the burden that Jen has to deal with on top of what she has to deal with on her day to day work. But now she's got that added responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the others spoke about it as well. So it just makes us, you know, appreciate, like you say. I think you know what what they they provide for us in terms of the science, the data, which is important. Um, but you know, let's, let's not be all doom and gloom, but you know, that's why I think in the past, Dr. Jack Audie has mentioned it and, and so on, it's the use of art, use of, you know, we've mentioned we've had documentaries, there's a lot of other ways of, of, of communicating and communication has been a key theme this year is scientists need to communicate science better um, and they need more platforms and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be a part of that as well. So we've had PhD students this year, we're gonna have more of them next year to give them a platform and we're gonna keep delivering the evidence. Um, that's our job. So on that note, to start lifting the mood a little bit up, let's, let's go on to our next group. Um, hopefully this will be a little bit more on a positive spin. Um, and again, these these are different journeys and, and, and um, the majority of them are, are listeners. In fact, they're all listeners of ours. So thank you to them. So our first one is Sue Meltzer. So she's a school principal, um, and she's going to talk a lot about uh, what she does with her school. But just a little interesting background. So she is one of my athletes that, that I coach. She's a former ski racer, uh, slalom, grand slalom, downhill. Um, and now she's accomplished already one hundred and thirty-three, 103 marathons to date. Um, she's dabbling in a few ultras due to undertake the first hundred miler, full of energy, wonderful lady. Here's her story.
7: As the principal of Kadima school, um, we're an inner city school in the middle of the Auckland CBD, a concrete jungle. Um, over the past five, six years, it's become very evident that, uh, we needed to approach our school philosophies in a completely different way. Not only did we need to um, have an environment where the children felt comfortable and were able to initiate um, projects around sustainability and environmental issues, but also to make the area that they play in more attractive. So at the beginning of our whole journey, we started with a project um, in a year six class that decided that they wanted to win some money to have beehives. And initially they decided they wanted to have the beehives on the roof of the building in Grays Avenue. Um, It progressed from there, they had to make a video. And as they were making the video, they suddenly realized that um, how bees played such an important part with um, sustaining the environment and sustaining pollination, therefore, it flowing on into the food, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then the children decided to go further. They won the competition. They got some money for bees. We didn't launch into buying bees at the time, but about 18 months later we decided that we would lease beehives. So that's when the garden situation really changed. They needed to plant um, gardens that would sustain the bees as well. Um, these children were incredibly motivated. They researched about the environment. They researched about how they could turn clay into good nourishing soil. We went up to the gardens, the community gardens in Simon Street, and the children talked to people up there, and they were taught to plant nitrate-giving plants. and. Um, harvest them, dig them back into the garden and we managed to turn our soil from clay to nourishing soil for plants to grow in. One of the big things around um, Jewish philosophy is a philosophy called Tikkun Olam, which is meaning in words, saving the world. So you can do this as far as um, saving the environment or helping humanity full stop. Um, We saw this as a good lead-in for our children to um, uh, link their environmental issues back to their culture and realise that actually environmental issues go right back to Israel and how right back to Torah or um, the Old Testament, and how some of the um, passages tell us that we should save trees Our trees are important, they give us food, they shelter us, and they're just good for the environment. So that was a key underlying philosophy for our school to continue going forward. Um, Our garden project was ongoing with a core group of um, children leaders. Everything around our school is led by children. It's um, uh, student-led, um, projects. The staff sit aside, they guide, they plant little ideas every so often, but the children need to pick this up and run with it themselves. And then they truly understand. They 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 make mistakes, sometimes things don't work, um, but that's the way it is in life and they learn from this. Um, a couple of years ago, all the environmental pro protests um, were happening around the world and lots and lots of children uh, were going to these protests and protesting against um, uh, climate change, which was a good thing. But as, as part of our school philosophy, we decided that yes, fine to go along and protest, but if you don't actually understand what you're protesting for, then why are you doing it? Why are you going through that process to go down with thousands of other youth and saying, we want this, we want this, if you actually don't know how to action it yourselves? So this is another reason why we have become really strong in our teachings to do with sustainability and environmental issues in our school. We want to have our children empowered. We want our children to understand and so that they can feed that forward into their families. And also when they have children themselves, they can um, action their children as well and truly understand. Um, Education is a great power, really. And um, without that, if you don't understand, how can you move forward? So we are a little school. We do um, hit very big. Recently, we uh, were finalists in the Prime Minister's um, Awards which is quite a big deal in New Zealand. And uh, we were entered into the sustainability and environmental section, telling our story over the last six years from turning our school from a concrete jungle to this vibrant um, school that not only um, talks about environmental issues and sustainability issues, but actually lives it we live it. Um, we've saved money on uh, water, we water our gardens through um, saving water out of our gutterings, our air conditioners in the summer, we feed our, not only our own community but the wider community. Um, through COVID times we um, saw that the K Road environment had a lot of more homeless people, so the older group of um, children used our produce from our gardens and made soup. And this was sold to not only our school, but also was given to the homeless in K Road as well. Really good ethics for children growing up to realise that it's things are not just handed on a plate for you. And this is a form of sustainability as well. If you can't sustain and look after your own and your community around you, then you can't really um, save the world, full stop. Um, But as far as technology and those sort of things go, we recycle bottles to use for watering. Uh, The children use uh, methods of propagation. I've talked about um, putting back into the soil. One of the um, Jewish philosophies is every seven years, we have which is um, replenishing the, the land um, let it lie um, and give back to the land. So not always taking, taking, taking. This really um, links into our Māori culture as well. Um, so the Jewish and Māori um, philosophies link really, well they segue together really, um, about giving back to the environment and not always taking. Um, we also recycle um, all our um, waste. Um, we make compost, we've got worm bins. Um, we were initiated um, into the bee projects in Myers Park, and we linked with um, Auckland Girls' Grammar at that time and designed the bee gardens down there as well. Um, we've also um, extended our composting out to not only our school community, but our Jewish community. And the wider community, and we have florists delivering all their offcuts, and we bought extra composting bins. Uh, We sell our honey, we sell our produce, we sell our compost. um, And we give back a lot to our community, and our Cairo community, and the City Mission as well.
1: Next up is another of our wonderful listeners, Matthew Day. Matthew is actually one of Ben's athletes and has been a really great support of our Athletes for Nature campaign. So thank you very much, Matt. Um, Here's Matthew discussing the changes he's personally made to care for our planet and how that actually came about.
8: My journey started probably about five years ago. Um, At the time, I was the typical meat-eating, meat-with-every-meal kind of person um, but unfortunately my wife was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Now she grew up, um, on a dairy farm in the Waikato. Um, so, uh, she was, uh, of what you can imagine, meat with every meal, home kill, um, dairy, lots of food like that. Um, and so when she was diagnosed with her, uh, bowel cancer, um, you start Looking into things a little bit, you know, you start doing reading into cures, therapies, things like that. But actually, what I discovered was um, all this information about the possible link between um, red meat and uh, the effects of bowel cancer, things like that. And so that's what first alarmed me, I guess. Um, and from there, I just kept reading and kept reading. Um, And I went down a a bit of a rabbit hole, I guess. And from my initial um, interest in the cancer link side of things, it developed into a more broader environmental thing um, of deep care for the planet. I have a son who's 13 now, um, and it brought home a lot of... uh, sort of worries for what the life he's going to have in the future um, I was interested in your um, you did a podcast um, I forget the name of the person that you did it now and that you did talk about uh, climate grief and I didn't know something like that actually existed but I think um, having listened to that and having thought about that I understand where that whole idea is coming from of worrying about the future and going through these sort of sad moments of you know w- what what on earth can we do you know what are we is it just all futile um, but you know there's I try and be positive about it Um, I've been vegan now I think about two years now I've been fully vegan and by default Mel my wife and William they have kind of become vegan. Uh, William is definitely a meat eater. Um, Can't stop him, but like I say, by default, he's probably become almost vegan. He gets meat where he can. Um, He still has milk on his cereal, but I'm working on him, I'm working on him, so maybe something will rub off. Um, I hope he understands why we're going vegan. We talk about it when we sat around the, the table um, you know about the reasons why we don't eat meat um, the reasons why we do simple things like picking rubbish up off the beach I live close to close to the sea here I'm an ocean swimmer I try and swim every day that I can um, but I see every day every time there's a tide that comes in I see all the new bits of plastic and bits of rubbish that get washed up on the beach and I, when I could get out the water I pick it all up and take it home and put it in the bin um so i physically get to see that kind of side of things and it's only on one little tiny beach and it's every day there's a new uh dumping of uh rubbish that comes in um we took William out on your plogging day, Ben. So we got William to come out. You'll have seen the photos. So William came down and he helped pick up the rubbish and he actually quite, quite enjoys doing things like that. So I think there's a, a love of the outdoors that's instilled in him by doing that. And he goes along and he's quite happy picking the rubbish up and just generally being in the outdoors. So I hope he appreciates the environment and the need to protect it. Um, and that he'll carry that torch that I've sort of started going forward.
0: Now, whilst there seems to be a bit of a trend, I promise this is the last one, but another of my coached athletes, uh, Cecilia Rodriguez Gomez, uh, she is from Mexico, uh, but she is um, currently in New Zealand uh, studying uh, for her Ph.D. in geothermal energy for exploration down in Palmerston North um and uh actually by the time this is published she's probably just gone back home uh so yeah here's a fascinating story about her journey since she's she's grown up and and kind of decided what she's always wanted to do and that is take action and inspire others
9: so my name is cecilia rodriguez i am from mexico and i guess i've always been a problem solver since i was a kid anything i could helped I would just do it and there was a river in front of our house and with me and my little kid neighbors we would do a cleanup every month I would also be the kid that would pick as many street dogs as I could and fix them up and find them homes so I guess I started uh, escalating into that (laughs) and uh, during my undergrad and high school a little bit as well I started joining international conventions and models of the u n and uh, international events that would allow me to see what was happening in the world, what other people were doing to help in all the ways like to me it wasn't at that point it wasn 't really specific i wasn 't just interested on humans or on animals or you know medicine or energy or the food chain it wasn 't really specific, I just wanted to know about it all, and I wanted to know um Where my place was, I guess, to help. So I've also always been very hands-on, so I started a career on engineering, geophysics, and I really liked uh, geothermal energy, so that's where I took my path, and I realized that after all these international conventions and talking to people that, as a society, we're always going to need more energy, um, regardless of how well or not we take of nature, hopefully we'll go well, but we'll always need more energy. So we need more sustainable sources of energy. So I decided that maybe that was my place. So that's one of the parts of my PhD. I'm studying a geothermal energy for like exploration. And I guess in the future, I would like to, now I'm based in New Zealand, but I would like to go back home and help my country and other countries to find natural resources that help us to have more sustainable energy so we can keep growing as a society without harming our environment, which is what gives us everything. And we owe everything to it. And therefore we can have more generations that can enjoy and yeah, enjoy what we've had. Um, Another part of my story is uh, I found that I had to be true to what like uh, preach what you say or do as you preach i don't know exactly how that uh, saying goes in english but um so i'm also a plant-based person i i started because of the energy reasons as you can see my path uh, of learning about energy i could see how it was an enormous waste and it was ridiculous the way we produce food and we didn't need So much meat and dairy and eggs and everything. So that's how I started but then I learned about the health benefits and somehow the full circle closes when you just know and therefore you are responsible. To me just by knowing the suffering that animals go through, the horrible system that we have in place to get a couple of minutes of pleasure and our taste buds is just so sad. And the whole circle to be a person that cares about the planet and about humanity living in the way we're doing it and enjoying the planet we have, that was the full circle. I also had to be plant-based and I had to respect all the other beings in every way possible. So it makes me feel complete. It makes me feel that I'm actually doing as I say and that I'm leading by example to other people. And to other generations um, and even older generations as well like everyone can be an example and everyone can inspire others so and I feel super good not only my body feels good but my mind is a total peace so that's that has been another big part of my story so far
1: Next up, we hear from the fantastic Jez Francis, one of our longtime supporters, who we're very thankful as part of our TLI community. Jez is a music therapist who's made a number of personal changes in recent years for personal and planetary health, and he wants to inspire others to do so as well. So here's Jez's story.
10: My story is I grew up in the, in the UK in the Northwest of uh, uh, in Cheshire area. And the lifestyle I had was a kind of rural run. And we we went into the village with my mom and we went to the meat shop and we went to the vegetable shop. And it kind of predates supermarkets and we grew bits of stuff in the garden. And I got used to um, what these days would be a pretty simple lifestyle, I guess, really. There was no fancy toys. I'm a bit older than I look. I'm 58. So it's kind of... um, uh, it in that in those days it just wasn't those options for all the things that kids have got now weren't there so i grew up with that and really my story is that since kind of um i think the starting point perhaps was when i was probably i think in 1981 i drove to glastonbury to watch the festival and in those days it was a cnd festival and for a campaign for nuclear disarmament and um we were living in a sort of era where um the world was living with this kind of escalation and the arms race and and we're still in the cold war effectively and you know i i remember conversations around um you know genuine conversations as students we used to have university about the four minute warning what are you going to do with your four minutes that you know the uk was gripped in that really it was a it was a common discussion and it was a very real kind of like you know that was the estimated time it would take for the soviets to launch it for the for the uh, our systems to pick up the fact that it was a, the missile there and that it was going to land so uh, and that's how much time you had so that kind of real sense of living with that it, i found it's related to the sort of you know the sense of doom perhaps that some teenagers or younger people or anybody can feel about this sort of uh, the the setup that we're in this sort of eco grief that you've got the fact that things are moving so slowly and it's it's not dissimilar it does so I, i do kind of i do get it and i do feel i do feel that myself to some extent but i am optimistic highly positive i think we have to be we have to be um so i my approach through all of this is um, to be like that and do what I can to make change. Basically, I've had a growing awareness all through the Thatcher era, through Reaganomics, where, you know, sort of it feels to me that greed was normalized, legitimized, legislated for or not legislated um, accordingly. Um, and so I feel an onus of responsibility to certainly to my kids, because I think, you know, my generation and previous generations have done a lot to get us to where we're at. Uh, and I can't look my kids in the eye or my grandkids in the eye and say, you know, I didn't do my bit. Um, and I'm a big believer. I'm a big fan of the um, the sort of the seven generation principle, you know, at, the mistakes and the, um, the positive things we do um, and our choices and behaviours are all resonate down through the generations and will resonate forwards. And the, change, the positive changes we need to be making now uh, have to be, we have to be thinking about three, four generations ahead, at least seven generations. Um, so I, I feel a responsibility to kind of do that. Um, and that's where that's where I've arrived to in my head. So at the moment, so I'm uh, I'm spending more and more time um, and investing more and more energy in finding out about uh, current technologies, what I can do um, to bring about change. So for me personally, one of the biggest uh, effects of climate change has been a real real reappraisal of my um not a reappraisal of my lifestyle but a sort of a confirmation of the lifestyle that i've been kind of moving towards anyway i've just become more hardcore about doing things that i've always kind of done you know absolutely minimizing water and energy use you know what uh, I've got to the kind of stage where I sort of you know when I turn the light switch on I'm just counting carbon everything's got a carbon cost it doesn't matter what you do so you flush the toilet it's a carbon cost you know e- everything is costing that sort of thing and it's just that once that sort of awareness kicks in um I don't think you know it it, it does make it, it makes it easier and it makes it harder because sometimes you've got to get over the guilt of you know I want to turn the hot tap on you know I know that it's cost us x amount of um carbon to to generate that electricity to pump it down the line here clean that water get it here for me to heat it up again you know um and just that whole chain of energy um and those system blocks that are all in place to make that sort of happen so uh, An awareness of that is probably a, a huge thing that is there now but t- to some extent you, you've got to live you know you, you have to kind of you can't make you can't live as a hermit and um you you have to have some um some sort of um pleasures in life i guess every little bit counts and i think you know my little bit on its own isn't much but if you multiply that by 5 million in new zealand and 65 million in the uk etc. You know, it adds up and it makes a difference. Another direct effect, I guess, of the um, situation is the fact that my, my wife and my kids are in the UK. My kids are grown up, but they are in the, in the UK. And uh, my wife did come over for a short visit, but I hadn't. And then she went back again and I hadn't really seen them for the best part of two years now other than through Zoom. Um uh, and that's because of, you know, if we had if we were able to travel through COVID, then they would have been out here and they would have been spending time out here. My wife certainly would have been spending a lot of time out here. So um if you want to link that to um perhaps environmental setups, you know, if if we didn't have the sort of global farming practices that that we have been adopting, then, you know, maybe that um, maybe that virus wouldn't have happened. Um, I guess the other huge impact for me uh, has been um, diet, cooking. I've I've gone um, since I, I've only been in New Zealand just over two years uh, and the time in the UK, I was moving away from, moving away from meat slowly but surely for the years, because I was brought up on that meat and two veg um so i've been moving away from that and here i've you know it didn't take me it's not taken me long to kind of figure out the value of a plant-based diet um and so i try and eat all plants uh pulses grains uh, legumes etc leafy greens um um, and then you think well i'm going around the supermarket I, i try not to buy plastic which is pretty much an impossibility. Uh, I try not to buy food that's wrapped in plastic, um, but I'm hopeful that we can we can do this and leave something that's worth leaving um, to our kids and their kids.
0: And for our final contributor in this uh, particular little batch, uh, full disclosure, Saskia Verais is not a listener yet. Um, actually, I approached her to contribute because I felt she was going to have quite a lot that she could really share with us. Uh, she's got over 25 years experience in various international senior and executive roles, including Chief Responsible Management Officer for Tourism Holdings Limited in Auckland, um, and currently, and this is how I met her, she's the Sustainable Futures Advisor at the Mind Lab, where I've just recently completed a micro-credential course in leading beyond sustainability. So here's her story about how she came to be doing what she's doing now through her whole life journey.
11: Okay, so so talking, I'm thinking of talking about why I care so much, I think, in, in regards to why why am I why, where I am in regards to the um, – everything I do is around um, trying to preserve a future, really. And I do this work-wise. I do this personally. I'm really I – I definitely am not perfect at all with what I do, but I, I definitely – am always aware of the impact that we have and that we can have from a positive and from a negative perspective on um, the future that we leave behind sort of thing and um my going back a long time my dad um I grew up in the Netherlands my dad was a geography teacher and um and he was a teacher of a lot of other things as well but geography was his was his passion and we he would we would travel around europe in a caravan because my mom was also a teacher so we would have a lot of time that we could go on holidays and the thing we would do was actually uh, based on his passion for geography and he would show us where the sources were of the big rivers in europe and that sort of thing and then he would so we would go and you know in some you know, the source of of a river is obviously in lots of places, but there will, somewhere there will be a little sign that says this is the source of, you know, the Rhone or the Musa or whatever it was. Um, And then we would travel around, you know, travel along that river in different times in different uh, different countries. And we would look at the factories that were sitting alongside those rivers and the pollution that it would bring. And, you know, and he would take photos of it and he would use that for his geography lessons as well as, um, as part of what he what he did um, but that obviously has had a massive impact on how I think and how I see the systems of um, of nature um, and he would actually also and Mum as well would actually do the same thing with culture too so it's definitely always been a systems view that I grew up with so also when I think about climate Change. I definitely see that as a as a, a consequence of a lot of other things, not not only um, as an environmental cause, uh, and definitely also not only an environmental um, uh, thing that we need to do to actually s- stop it. As in, it's not. It, it, there's no point in just in just talking about. Um, changing transport or, um, you know, going to renewable energy or that sort of thing, because there's a lot more um, that sits behind actually us needing needing to solve to actually solve global warming in general. And I have, um, I studied uh, public and business administration because I wanted to actually, at the time, I thought I want to aim for the biggest, what I could think of at the time, <laughs> The biggest job that i could have where i could influence um a lot of policy um on on common good, which was the un the united nations at in my head at the time so i studied i started studying public administration um but throughout studying i actually already got a little bit disappointed with what i saw in in policy making and politics and that sort of thing so that's why i also took on business administration because i thought hey actually Businesses can uh, can do a lot in this space too, and who knows where I end up. Um, but I did read as part of one of my papers then um, our common future, the Brundtland report, and um, which you know so it says a bit about my age. This was it, it hadn't it hadn't been that long that it had come out <laughs> at that time. So, um, but but that said so much the back then already as in how we should be thinking to preserve uh, to do what we do now. Without impacting what is what what is happening in the future, and um, whilst at the time I didn't realize um, you could actually do that fully as a career to actually you know help help that, um, I have always been doing the decision making and trying to influence the decision making of others as well by. Doing it as best we can, with that in mind with how you know what is the impact on the future um, and so yeah there's lots of there's lots of things um that I've done throughout my life or not done throughout my life because of because that's sitting in my mind all the time. Children is definitely one of those too. I mean you mentioned that as part of it, um, but that is you know the world- the the growing world population um has always always been a big worry of me. And um and it is a it's a massive big topic and I hardly ever, ever talk about it because I know it it so quickly goes um touches touches so deep for many people. And so I, I that is one of the things I generally don't I just don't I, I ask sometimes when people, you know, when yeah when people um, plan for big families still. But I generally just leave it alone. Um, but yeah, I also have never, um, never bought, I actually personally have never bought a car, um, definitely never a new car, never owned more than one, if, if as in combined with, um, with somebody else, just, you know, always always try and do public transport for first, always try and do local food first. Like in dietary requirements, like on conferences, for years and years and years and years, when they say other, I type in local and seasonal. and it never gets taken serious. Now it's sometimes I get a response back when I do it, but it generally it does it never gets taken serious. But for me, those are the things that we all should be doing you know if anything you know don't you know this this small things right not eating not eating produce that is actually not in season i mean there it makes you know there's there is there tiny little things that people may not be aware of still but um all of that has got um has got has got massive impacts on 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 what you do and then supporting local in regards to the climate side, but also in regards to indeed making you know those other bits that I was talking about in regards to culture and the you know the the other the other big issues that we're um, that we are having and that also have a big impact on um, our futures and the climates and um, what we leave behind. So if you can support even when traveling, so I ended up. My career, the biggest part of my career has been in tourism because I felt that through inspiring people when they travel to actually do the right thing when they travel, they learn from other cultures, they see environment. I know the emission impact of flights is not great, but at the same time, the positive impact of traveling and doing it the right way is incredible and still is. And it would be an absolute shame if that would be if that wouldn't be possible anymore because I think we would lose I think you know a lot of the um progress that we've made as as humans is also because we travel it's also a, you know the transport itself is also the not good part but at the same time it still um provides insights and um yeah, and income streams for 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 locations that otherwise may not have that. And um, uh, yeah, so it is a it is a doing doing the right thing wherever you are, whenever you whenever you uh, are there in whatever situation you are trying to listen and take as many um, systems points into account when you make your next decision um, is something that I try and do and have always tried and do and what I try and teach on uh, on, on, on courses like Leading Beyond Sustainability, Leading Change for Goods or whatever place I'm in Um, and that's why also creating awareness I think and it's great that you do podcasts, I think, because only through awareness and through talking about it are people going to realize I, I am I am always blown away. And that is because you're sort of sometimes in a bubble, right, if you're in the sustainability um um, ecosystem you, you, you know everything because we have been like the bruntland report because we have been talking about it in that bubble we have been talking about it for a very long time but there is still a majority that hasn't been part of that we haven't been inclusive for whatever reason um, so the aware the more awareness we can create about all these things i think the better it is because um people might may, may only remember one percent of what we say, but if it's the right one percent, they'll make a better decision next time
0: Well, hopefully we're feeling a little bit more upbeat uh, after this round and and a lot of common commonality here um you know as Saskia uh wrapped up, you know creating awareness is important, but there's a lot of commonality around um inspiring you know doing the little that you can uh is inspires us, uh, others to do their bit. Um and there's that collective approach. And I think that's that's a key message here.
1: That's it. Yeah. I'm I'm feeling hopeful after hearing that. Um, you know, it can often be overwhelming um and you can feel a little bit helpless as an individual, but there's been that real common thread through these stories here that people are doing what they can um, you know, within their power to do so. And that collective action Is what's needed to save our home and it all starts with individuals so yeah feeling positive
0: yeah and it doesn't matter what background you're from either um again five very unique stories we're talking about kids we're talking about personal journeys for health we're talking about journeys for from an environmental point of view um it doesn't matter it all adds up so you know if sometimes you're doing something you think well what's the point which i've been in that boat sometimes um you know here's a whole bunch of other people doing the same thing that little bit. And they're all questioning the same thing. Is it worth me doing, making this extra little effort? But it all adds up. So, yeah, well done to 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 them. But, you know, to anyone else, keep doing what you're doing. And for me, there's always been a mantra. If you're in a in a position to be able to do something, you're obligated to do it. You should do it. You shouldn't take a step back and ignore it. So, you know, the same thing like plogging: If you're out, you see a bit of rubbish on the side of the road, pick it up. You know yep. that could save a fish. It could save a bird. It could save. It could pollute a little bit less. But if everyone did that, imagine the result.
1: Exactly, and it's not hard.
0: Right. So we're on to the third part, um, and these are going to be some some real uh, fascinating stories, as they all have been. But again, a different perspective.
1: That's it. So up next, we hear from another past guest of the show, Andre Burrell. Andre is the driving force behind the important documentary Envoy Shark Cull, and here Andre shares his heartbreaking story of the environmental degradation that he's witnessed firsthand below the waves.
12: Hey Ben, hey Emma, hey listeners, thank you for inviting me to be part of this end of season episode. Uh, When I was on, we were talking about shark culling, uh, the shark control program, the Bay the Protection Program in Australia, uh, all fancy words for a shark cull. Uh, and, uh, when I heard that this end of season episode was about climate change, I actually had the, had the perfect story for it. So, uh, look, when I, I, I guess you need to rewind a little bit before production, before filming, long time before filming of that, uh, of, of the film, uh, you have to rewind back to when I'd first done my PADI certification. Uh, and one of the first dives I wanted to go and do was, was up in the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, so I went to a, went to a nice little dive site called uh, bait reef. It's not on the outer reef. It's, it's close ish to shore. Uh, so you can do it as a, as a day trip from, uh, I did it from Hamilton Island. Anyway, all these years ago, it was probably, uh, probably six, seven years ago. Um, it was beautiful. It had all this really nice colorful staghorn coral, uh, absolutely gorgeous staghorn coral for those who don't know what it is. It looks kind of like antlers, uh, 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 you know, of a, of a, Deer or something like that or a buck I should say um and, and beautiful colors purples and yellows and it was just it was just gorgeous it was a really nice dive uh pretty spoilt for for you know it was probably my first 20 dives or so I headed up there um for filming Envoy Shark Carl decided to go back to the Great Barrier Reef because uh, there's a section in the film there's a good 10 minute section in the film uh, without any spoilers about about the Great Barrier Reef and uh, you know whether sharks are killed on the reef uh, or, or not for bather safety. Um, anyway, went back there to shoot a scene about that, and it was all dead, all of it gone. Those beautiful bright colours were now this dead white, and not just white, uh, as like you'd have from a fresh coral bleaching event. Uh, but they were white with then algae and stuff growing all over them. So, like, well and truly dead. Some were snapped off, dead, broken. So that, for me, uh, I think it's relevant for for this episode. That was, you know, not what we were going there to shoot, not what we are expecting to shoot, but a real, a real wake-up call and a, a real kick in the guts. Between that first dive and that second dive, the Great Barrier Reef had, had experienced uh, two or three, I can't quite remember, two or three, mass bleaching events uh, and yeah just to go back to the exact same site just a few years later and had gone from stunning so many fish beautiful uh, we saw sharks to dead absolutely nothing like the odd fish was hiding in the dead coral and eating the algae and and, and it was really just uh it was pretty heartbreaking. Um, it was rough to see, and, and you know, soft corals can recover quicker, but hard corals take a long, long, long time to grow. And these didn't look like they were recovering. Uh, the The amount of growth they had on them, I think they were, they were done for good. So that's hundreds of years to regrow, uh, as far as I'm aware. So, yeah, we're doing some, doing some pretty bad things to this planet, uh, through through human activity. You know fossil fuels animal agriculture there's there's, yeah there's so many things that we could just fix if we put our mind to it um and the fact that we're not is disappointing and to see it so clearly with your own eyes this beautiful healthy live reef to absolutely dead desolate a desert really in the ocean um was was yeah hard to see so Sorry for a bit of a downer of a story, I guess. <laughs> but uh, look, that's been my experience and, and I think not many people get to see it so clearly to go, in this time, we've caused this damage and and um, yeah, it's 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 hard to see. I wish more people could see it because I think more people would act. I wish world leaders would see it, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, that's my story about climate change and seeing it firsthand. And uh, yeah, I, I, hope, I hope you can take some inspiration of it and do what needs to be done in your local community, and, and pressure your leaders to do the right things. Because if we don't stop, all of the Great Barrier Reef is going to be gone. All coral reefs are going to be gone. Plus, untold number of, of of other consequences. I'm in the Maldives right now on a shoot. You know, this place, this place is going to be underwater um, if we don't do something. So, yeah. Uh, sorry if that was a bit of a downer, but uh, yeah, I, I hope you I hope you um, learn something from it. Um, Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Emma, as always. Uh, Good to talk. Thank you. Bye.
0: Following up from that, we have another past guest, one of our very first guests, actually, is uh, Brad Dalrymple. Um, He is the Principal Environmental Engineer at Ocean Protect, and they do actually, by the by, have their own podcast, which we encourage to listen only after you've listened to our episode of the week. (laughs) Um, And uh, On top of that, he's also a very accomplished plant-powered triathlete. So a lot in commonality with us, which is great. His story is more about the first-hand experience of climate change itself living in Brisbane.
13: I'm an environmental engineer and something like 20 something years ago, I was at university, uh, learning about climate change. And back in those days, it was just a a concept seemingly. Uh, and it seemed to be a long way away, uh, seemed to be pretty significant but it wasn't really getting much attention, if I'm honest. Um, fast forward 20-something years, I guess I've lived and breathed uh, a lot of the predictions that we actually talked about in class, you know, the extreme weather events, um, the, uh, the 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 floods, the droughts, the bushfires, et cetera. Um, you know, just in my neck of the woods in Brisbane, uh, we in the early 2000s, we went through what was called the Millennium Drought. So water levels were down to really, really low levels in our water supply dams. We were looking at trucking water into the Brisbane CBD. Um, and very soon after we had um, the 2011 floods, um, which caused catastrophic damage uh, across Brisbane and Southeast Queensland and beyond, and killed a lot of people. Uh, I worked firsthand on the class section, um, defending the operators of uh, the Wyvernhoe Dam and the uh, seq water etc and to go through some of the police footage around how people died uh, during that 2011 flood event was pretty gruesome um and and look for that event it was a a crazy extreme event we were talking about a one in a thousand year event in in various parts of brisbane including uh directly above wyvernhoe dam and like i said only 10 years prior we were on water restrictions and then fast forward a few more years, then we uh, lived through the bushfires uh, that uh, is in pretty recent memory. And I remember being down in Falls Creek in Victoria on a triathlon training camp and uh, we we're, we're, were basically told to get get the hell off the mountain because um, it was looking pretty uh, dicey. And hightailed it down to the bottom of the of of falls creek and basically had to keep moving um went from bright where my uncle and auntie were and they they thought they were safe they had to get evacuated very soon after and i was basically nowhere to go i was planning on going to albury to visit small relatives um they said don't come to us because we're in the danger zone went to bendigo to visit my grandmother and even in bendigo country victoria a long way away from the fires the, the smoke in the air was unbelievable you, you couldn't go for a run you couldn't go for a swim you unless you want to cough up a lung so um and i had to, long story short i had to hightail it out of victoria and get back to brisbane and look my my inconveniences were nothing relative to the obviously the the catastrophic um you know, i guess events that thousands of australians had to live through uh and then you look at the wildlife impacts and um it was devastating you know probably millions of of our wildlife our iconic species the kangaroos koalas and everything in between um suffered terrible fate and and now we look at uh, our leaders uh, converging in glasgow talking about what to do about climate change and and clearly not planning on doing much uh at all and clearly it's not enough um but from my perspective uh, I guess my my biggest surprise from that is the fact that we would have any expectation that our political leaders would do anything more uh, than what they already do, which is very little. Um, So I think we need to get away from this idea that someone else is going to save us uh, from this uh, climate change um, issue. And it is a big issue. That's potentially the biggest issue that uh, uh, the human race has ever faced. Um, But And whilst uh, I guess a lot of the... The stories and the predictions are fairly doom and gloom um, for me you 've got to reframe it you 've got to look at it and go, well this for me is a, is a great opportunity to to achieve the seemingly impossible. Uh, we probably will the, 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 I guess mitigating climate change and essentially saving the planet and subsequently us uh, is a <clears throat> is a big challenge, um, and potentially it, it might seem to a lot of people completely insurmountable. Um, But from my perspective, that also gives us an invitation to rise uh, to a level above our current expectations of ourselves. And it's not just a prime minister or a president of X and Y country. It's all of us. It's mums, dads, business people, um, kids. Uh, political leaders, mechanics, engineers, doctors, nurses, everyone, everyone has their role to play in this. And, and we do collectively need to come together and, and mitigate this issue. Uh, and I've got every every confidence that we will, but we do need to do it in this decade. This, for me, is a decade of significant change. Um, we, we no longer have the indulgence of, of the status quo or, or essentially doing nothing. We must um, rise to this challenge. Um, And that does need a whole bunch of actions, you know, and I think everyone, like I said, everyone has a role to play, whether it's uh, looking at your own diet and particularly looking at reducing animal product consumption um, and eating more whole food, plant-based sources of food. Um, Travelling, dare I say, jumping on planes a little bit less frequently, uh, maybe riding a bike or going for a walk instead of jumping in your car. Uh, there's a lot of things we can all do to collectively go a long way to addressing this problem, but certainly we do need significant change and we do need significant change now.
1: Next up, we hear from the lovely Jan Saunders, who's a passionate supporter of the show and owner of the Beat Retreat, a vegan B&B in Noosa. Here Jan shares her story of how climate change has personally impacted on her and how it now shapes her decisions and actions moving forward.
14: Hi, Emma. And Ben, thanks so much for this opportunity for we normal folk to have um, an opportunity to share our feelings about um, the climate crisis and, and how we personally navigate our way through our lives, trying to make as little impact as we possibly can and hopefully a positive difference in our own large and small way. Um, let's start I guess with a little bit of backstory on who I am um, so as you mentioned I'm Jan Saunders I run the Beat Retreat Vegan B&B up uh, in Noosa Queensland a former Victorian I've, um, moved up here about two years ago in 2019 just pre-COVID um, that sort of leads uh, in a moment to Part of the reason I ended up being here, but first, um, just a bit of a backstory. I uh, went vegan in 2012, uh, I was a, a cop in Victoria Police at that time, I had been for 33 years, and um, in mostly in the Mounted Police as a trainer and instructor, and uh, I came across the ABC program, Four Corners, and watched uh, on Live Export and started to deep dive into animal rights issues from there. Uh, So I was very much an ethical vegan at that time. I also knew very little about the health benefits of a plant-based diet um, and was quite delighted that it was uh, such a hugely beneficial thing for a human to do, um, as I was uh, an athlete at that time and still am, uh, even at age 59. Um, It was a little bit later that I also came to uh, discover the huge impact that animal agriculture played around the world in driving the climate crisis Um, i'd always been i guess a bit of a greenie ever since uh pre-joining the police force as a bright starry-eyed 19 20 year old Um, so it's sort of come full circle it's really become a bit of a driver of my business now because i think that everything to do with animal rights and human health um, is hinged on climatry issues and conservation. Um, so I really welcome this opportunity uh, to just expand a little bit on my feelings about it and the direction also of the of my B and B. I considered. Um, moving up here in 2014, I'd done a year of global travel, just really low-budget backpacking um, while I in, um, considered my future, basically. Um, and what I, I knew that I wanted to move this direction in time. But by the time that was in 2014, you know, I came up and did a recce and, and really liked this region. But when the time came in um, mid-2019 you know, we'd had the Black Saturday fires year before, which had, uh, years before, which had uh, impacted my region. And I was in the Yarra Valley, just down the hill from King Lake. And my growing awareness, of course, you know, there was no denying that um, one had to very carefully consider where, you know, you wanted to live um, for a long, you know, long term. So, I opened up basically Australia-wide. It was just myself, so, you know, I could consider anywhere I wanted to go. Um, This region still seemed to me, on the face of it, a good choice because it's not too high up that you're going to be really impacted by a lot of tropical activity in regards to flooding and um, cyclones and that sort of thing, Um, but... The southern states had actually become, I think, a very dangerous place. I mean, living on my 20-acre property for 25 years, um, I had a wildfire safety bunker installed in 2015, I think it was. Um, and every summer, you're anxious. And as each, each year went by, I was increasingly anxious every summer. Uh, incredibly dry region. Um, those big hot northerly winds you've got a very heightened sensitivity to the prospect of bushfire when you live in that situation for a long time. Um, Ironically when I moved I ended up uh, yes I I did end up deciding to move to this region it seemed like a great bet and I actually think it is Um, and uh, the irony is that when I moved up here to this you know, pretty benign subtropical area. There was a bushfire for the first time in many, many years, apparently, in my township of Karoiba, um, requiring me to evacuate my three cats and a dog two and a half weeks after I got here. My neighbours actually said I bought my bushfire mojo with me. Um, but you know, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, I was like, seriously? <laughs> After all of this long deliberation about um, where I'm going to move to, <laughs> thinking I made a good choice and I'm being evacuated um, because of a bushfire. I certainly didn't muck around either. I saw that huge plume of smoke and I left two hours before we were officially evacuated uh, because I don't muck around with fires having, you know, had an experience with too many of them. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think that, you know, when, um, you are very aware of the climate crisis that high on your list of priorities, when you are considering where to purchase or move to, um, that climate change is, or should be a really important factor in your decision-making process, um, yeah, I looked at a lot of places, I mean, you know, and like I said, you know, I love Tasmania, it's a little bit cold for me, but you know, I love the natural landscape there, but the fact is, uh, Tasmania burns now, even in that um, remote sort of southwest area, which they never really, um, or oh, they don't often experience such intense fires as they had a few years ago. Um, so yeah, so taking that forward, what I do here at the Beet Retreat, and which um, I'll be focusing more and more on, I'm just in transition to land for wildlife here now. Conservation is a very big part of my life. Um, and I'll be have put in 650 endemic and native species um, into my garden come the uh, end of January it's of course, you know, it's sort of rainy season. I've just put in 350. Um, so I'm in transition for that and I'm also registered now with um, – the Humane Society International Land Trust, uh, working also with um, Urban Gardens for Wildlife and then uh, Noosa Landcare and Zero Emissions Noosa. So, you know, I've got a big 13.2 kilowatt system on the roof now. I'm working towards battery storage. Um, I've tank water, I always have, um, and veggie garden, orchards are in. And, I'm, and uh, hopefully one day I'll be able to afford, afford an electric vehicle. Um, But at the moment, you know, I feel like I'm in a really good position. Um, Part of what I do here is not only educating um, my guests and people that come on retreat about whole food, plant based eating and making really positive life changes for themselves and their family, but really trying to encourage that awareness and particularly um, being proactive about the climate uh, crisis uh, with how they vote, how they consume. How they, you know, consume everything, so what they buy, um, and just doing the very best they can in no matter what situation that they are living in, be it an apartment or an acreage or you know a three-acre block like this or a suburban backyard. Um, there are so many things that we can do, and I think that, like Greta Thunberg said, you know, um, you feel it's it could be very easy to get depressed. I think, particularly if you had children. I actually don't. Um, but when you are active um, and you're actively engaged and you are uh, feel like you're contributing um, and part of the solution, no matter how small it is, um, you do feel empowered and excited. And for the most part, that's exactly what I am, you know. Um and brings me into contact with really wonderful people. I love being able to help people with both, you know, their health, their vitality, but also this because it's very, very important. So anyway, so that's about it. You know, um, thanks very much, and I really love your work.
0: Right, and our next contributor, we've mentioned her at the start of the show, Dr. Sally Gillespie. She's a writer workshop facilitator, lecturer, and public speaker, uh, as well as the author of Climate Crisis Consciousness, which uh, is a book on reimagining our world and ourselves, which uh, explores the psychological experience of engaging with climate change and related ecological concerns. And she certainly has her own personal story, which is reflected in the book, uh, but here's a little overview of it.
15: Two years ago, this time exactly two years ago, My husband and I left Sydney to go on a road trip for two weeks through Canberra, down through the south coast of New South Wales, into Melbourne and back, and we were doing various work things in in each of those places. The Sydney we left was completely infused with smoke, as it had been for some weeks. From the fires up north the fires that were now starting around the blue mountains and uh, the hunter valley and so on it was so hot and everything was so dry and we left not knowing if we were going to be able to to do the whole of this trip or not i downloaded my fires near me app and we just went again not knowing what would be happening in sydney yeah so we went we went down to canberra and we, the fires intensified around Sydney and we felt fortunate to be breathing fresh air. Um, but very apprehensive as we drove from Sydney down to the south coast, it was just so dry. And when we got to our friends down there to stay, all, the preparations for the fires were full on. People were drilling every day, the, all the organisation was there. We were in Tartra, which had already burnt two years previously. People knew what to expect from fires, and they, they knew they had to be prepared. We went up to Cabago, a little New South Wales t- town, to talk about installation of solar panels and all their, their plans for renewable energy. And, you know, it was great to be in community. And at the same time, there was just this palpable feeling of fear about the fires up north and how close this place was to going up. Everywhere we went, the boards were on the extreme fire risk. Uh, From there, we went down through Victoria, East Geelong. Um, I had never been there before. It was such a beautiful country, Uh, beautiful trees, beautiful forests. And again, bone, bone dry. So we did make it through our trip. And two weeks later, just before Christmas, we drove back into Sydney, which by this stage was surrounded by fires. However, we were able to get up through the motorway and we went back into the thick, thick smoke. And from there, that Christmas and New Year unrolled with just these terrible stories of fire erupting one after the other in all the places we'd been throughout the whole South Coast, through East Geelong. and. Just the horror, having been having been there, seeing it so beautiful, met with such beautiful people doing great work around renewable transitions and things like that, and just knowing that their lives were being devastated. We heard the stories about homes being lost, people being evacuated, um, and, be, and beyond that, the, the horror of so many billions of hectares of land and of wildlife destroyed. It was a very grim summer. In February, two months later, we headed back down to Melbourne on the train for the Climate Action Summit. The rains had come the week before, so the fires were just out and we went through a lot of very, very burnt out bush. I just read Dark Emu all about, you know, the way uh, Indigenous people had looked after land and where the land wasn't burnt, I was seeing just, you know, land which was just so desiccated and dead. And I just felt shame and appalled to what had been done to, to our land by, by this whole uh, colonisation process. Uh, throughout... COVID hit, of course, very quickly after that. I mean, there was so much grief. In working for Psychology for Safe Climate, we were contacted continuously to support people. And then COVID kind of sent everything a bit underground. Um, however, what did start to emerge once we were able to get back with people with so many stories around bushfires a lot of people said well COVID distracted from what happened from the bushfires that's not my experience as soon as you start talking to people around anything to do with their feelings around climate bushfires come up immediately for ourselves we've been back to the south coast a number of times and you know we've seen regrowth And that looks great when you look out and see the green on the black trunks. But what I have learned is a lot of that regrowth is not good regrowth, it's doomed regrowth. It's the regrowth that comes when those trees are just gone beyond a certain point of regeneration. They throw the spinal flush out. There's also a lot of saplings coming through all at the same time, which can actually dry the land out. So I've learned to hold the good and because we have seen some really good bush regeneration and heard bird sounds returning to places where there were no bird sounds initially. But I've also come to understand more of the incredible complexity around fire and land and what has caused these massive fires, not only the global climate situation, but the lack of proper um, slow burns, which have been practised by Indigenous people for millennia here, you know, controlled way of controlling fire and and nurturing the land uh, and what has been lost through losing that practice and what is now being started to be invited back in but there is obviously a lot of complexity to how well that can be done and uh, the scale it can be done but this is all there and I've also been asked to support a lot of creative ventures Photography exhibitions, films, storytelling—they're, you know, a bit like regenerate. There is a certain life or a flush that comes into community as it as it pulls itself together. And going back into communities, going back to Cabago, which was severely burned um, in the fires, there are different stories around regeneration, and some of them are very much to do with just getting. Getting through as best one can through trauma, trauma intensified by governments that have not released the funds in the way that have been promised, homes still not been rebuilt yet, people still waiting, but also about community starting things. In Kibago. we learnt one of the best initiatives for healing trauma, bringing community together, has been to start a community garden. And it's, it's not that people lack land there, you know, they're all gardens, but they come to the community garden in the centre, close to where a lot of places burnt down. And it's become the refuge, not only to, to tend the soil together, but as doing so to be able to just say how it is, you know, the good, the bad, the the, the, the struggles, the commitment, all of that. As I said, in Psychology for Safe Climate workshops, it is the story which recurs over and over again. The fires in Australia affected everyone at some level, and most people had some actual embodied experience around the fires in terms of whether it was smoke, whether it was fires, whether it was connection to people who had evacuated, or had evacuating connection to people, and so on, as well as the sense of the huge loss of wildlife. Um, those stories need to be told and the connections need to be made. And that's become a big part of our work really. And it's this, this year I'm looking out on a very green Sydney. There's been a huge amount of rain, so much rain, (laughs) there's been floods. And so now we have an understanding. It's not just fires, it's floods, it's storms. And these disruptions are just not only coming one after another, overlapping very often, one another. Uh, So there's, it's a complex story. And it's a story about how our land is changing, our seas are changing, and how we are changing uh, in response. And some of that change is very traumatic, uh, and involves a great deal of loss. But what I really do have a sense of, and I have experienced for myself, is a pull into the land and a pull into community. Um, I have a, I'm part of a community garden and a permaculture food forest here. Our numbers have swollen considerably. Uh, and I think there is a real sense that we have to... And we need to, and we want to. The grief takes us into the love of what we have, and in, often in the particular, the very trees that we see out our out our window or in our parks. Um, all of that has become very. Um, I don't know how do I say it? The focus has become very clear about what it means and what it feels like to see that the kinds of destructions we're seeing and what it means and feels like to get together and put our hands in soil or connect in community and do something right where we are that is part of the healing and part of the protection and part of the consciousness raising of this huge work that is our lifetimes. You know, this is what our lifetimes are for now. This this work of both comprehending the damage, responding to it, learning, acting, healing, um, and pulling down very deep because one of the things we did see from those fires is that there were blooms that hadn't been seen for 60, 80 years. Seeds that had not popped of certain species because they had not had a certain form of fire. And that, that happened too. And so there is, there, is a, there is, it's very, very dynamic. And I think that's what you feel when you've been close to fire. You know that the huge energy that it lies there in our world, and that can be taken all number of ways in all number of situations. And I can't just draw a simple sentence to bring this to close, but, but to say that the fires have changed us And what follows is continuing to change us. The land is changing. And most importantly, we are really more and more viscerally getting what it means to be a part of all of that.
0: As Sally just finished off, change, that's a big one. Everything's changed, still changing, but, you know, fire, flooding the way our land our waters are changing the way it's affecting life from uh, our reefs that that Andre spoke about to to you know the whole ecology the whole ecosystem Um, and we're a part of it and it's certainly impacting it's impacting us and it's impacting us quicker you know one one day you don't have water the next day you're running away from fire I mean it's yeah we've got to adapt and we're going to have to keep adapting
1: yeah yeah i mean for australia climate change means more floods and more fires and more heat waves and you know more life loss, loss of life tied up with that um we're particularly vulnerable here because of our size and we've already got extreme weather conditions which are only going to get worse and it's going to touch all regions i mean it already is and as you say, like it's shaping how people live their lives and the devastating flow on effects that has to our natural world as well. Like very recently we've lost billions of animals to wildfire. Um, we've lost half the coral in the Great Barrier Reef since the mid nineties. And I've I've gotta say I resonated very strongly with Andre's story. I got my paddy licence when I was eighteen. I I can't imagine a world without coral reefs and it's so incredibly sad to know that we could be losing the largest coral reef in the world right under our noses and we know that it's coming we know that 90 percent of the reefs are going to disappear if we breach that 1.5 degree warming um Mm. so yeah it's it's confronting
0: but to come back to sally's uh, one of her key points here is that importance of bringing community together and connecting with the earth and you know she's spoken up Uh, before about the whole concept of grounded hope and you know doing and again it's start we're starting to see themes here right and doing something is 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 a is going to help us in terms of giving us that hope but it's also that collectiveness Um, if we all come together as a community it's support as well as actually taking action Um, so there's a lot going on and we're going to see more of it Um, in New Zealand we're seeing it as well you know more extreme extremities Um, In terms of flooding or or, or heat, Um, you know, I'm feeling the heat more in in Auckland, not, you know, and I love the heat, but the humidity is more intense and and that heat is is, is there for longer. So it's impacting us anywhere in the world. Um, It's a reality. And I think there's a big need to be able to adapt um, and not just adapt and you've got to make change, right? But we've also got to realize that it's happening and you can't get away from that.
1: Yeah, and that just reinforces the importance, again, of what a number of our guests, our um, contributors have said, like find that community and be able to talk about it because we do need to talk about this. This is taking a toll on you know our mental and physical health. So we need to share these stories and know we're not alone in feeling this way.
0: Right. Let's, let's get on to that next group then. Um, yeah, this is going to be another interesting batch
1: so next you'll be hearing from ryan alexander the co-founder and managing director of no meat may we've been lucky enough to feature ryan on the podcast previously and support the no meat may campaign here ryan discusses his personal connection to nature and wildlife and the need to not return to pre covid normal but shift towards something better
16: okay so a personal story about climate change um it's a big question to ponder but I think for me, it's probably more about my connection to and and having this real love of nature and wildlife. Um, Like I think a lot of us do, but I've been known to lose hours behind the lens of my camera when I walk through nature or, you know, walking through an ancient forest or a new landscape. Or when I'm snorkeling through a reef of tropical fish, um, you know, it recharges and inspires me like nothing else. So um, knowing how much there is um, still to lose if we don't change our path quickly is probably my greatest motivator and i think of events like the annual world wildlife photography exhibit uh which is something you know so many people including myself love to go and see it's a um a wondrous event and the thought that these images along with all of david attenborough's magnificent documentaries could just become archives of a lost world is totally devastating to me um on a more spiritual level i also feel that our current predicament is you know, it's like that ultimate human struggle of that, you know, within our nature between the good and the bad, and our need versus our greed. And also knowing that the impact of climate change, like the impact of COVID, um, things get messy and it's going to really bring out the best and the worst in us and could easily tear much of the good in our society apart. Um, and I think things will get a lot messier and a lot more challenging than they need to be if we don't act fast. And just from a personal point of view, I don't like conflict. I don't like violence. Um, I'm really motivated to avoid avoid all the bad stuff. So, um, yeah, again, it's a big motivator. Also, my recent recognition that we are indeed a part of nature and that our economic systems, the way that we um, trade, et cetera, it's all in a large part built around our exploitation of nature Um, I feel like that's like maybe our biggest challenge, you know, how do we redesign, reconfigure everything to be um, sustainable? Yet, as an optimist and a problem solver who sees the good in people, I really do feel we have the capacity to change our path, but it's going to take a monumental transformation of our culture, the way we eat, the way we travel, the way we do business, the way we socialize, the way we work, the way we play. It's big all right, but I do feel like we all need to shift our energy and time to direct as much as possible towards the solutions whilst taking care of each other. Um, and personally, my decision to work full time on the No May campaign um, was for me uh, shifting my energies into what I felt is a better direction. And I guess final thought, I guess, is for me, I'm really, personally, I'm really struggling at the moment with this um, return to pre-COVID normal and this desire that uh, I have and so many people have just to get back to this, you know, what we were like before, which was really an over-consuming, high emissions activity that we're all used to. Um, and in particular, I guess our great desire to travel, to see new places and get inspired by other cultures and um, landscapes, et cetera. I think it's something that we need to really dial down significantly, yet for so many of us, it's one of those things that brings us great joy and it's something that we connect over. Um, we love talking about our travel almost as much as we connect and um, with each other around food. So, uh, yeah, I feel like that's going to be a big challenge and it's going to be something
0: that's going to, um, yeah, it's uh, personally going to impact on me. Our next contributor is Associate Professor Ian Tibbetts. Uh, he is uh, an associate professor at the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Queensland and serves as the director of the Moreton Bay Foundation. And in his uh, contribution, he talks about the full journey of uh, sort of observing the decline um, and then now the, the hope and the positivity of the improvement of the whole Moreton Bay region. And his key message here is get out there and get involved.
17: Well, hello, dear watchers, listeners, wherever you may be. This is Tibbets coming to you from Australia. And obviously in times of COVID, on my back deck, I have a green screen. And times have been tough. But there's hope on the horizon. I've had some really good discussions over the past few months. We've managed to change some things during the times of COVID, which I think are changing, turning things around. So a bit of background We have a bit of an issue here in our region, Quandamooka which is uh, Morton Bay, Uh, some people know as Morton Bay, Quandamooka, has suffered a lot of pressure from folks doing things over the years. Initially in the early days of of European invasion slash settlement it was extraction of oysters. Uh, Some were to eat but mostly it was to get the shells to make lime which then they used to make concrete of course. Cement and then concrete. So, folks worked really hard at removing oyster shell from our bay and they removed about 95% of it. So, 95% of this wonderful, rich, filtering organisms were removed from the bay, which was a bit of a tragedy. When they used up all the oysters, it was no longer sensible to go and try and get them because the numbers were so low. They switched to mining dead corals, moribund corals, they call them moribund coral reefs. They actually reasonably well-functioning coral reefs in Moreton Bay. It was just uh, an excuse. So then they would dig up the coral, mine the coral, calcium carbonate skeleton, bake it into lime, make cement, concrete to make stuff. So anyway, so they went down that little spiral, and then a bunch of folks started to diversify their diets and eat other things, and that led to a great decrease in some of the important shellfish and also some of the important things like sea cucumbers, which some people might know as beche de mer. Anyway, so there's been a great decline in those. And things look pretty grim for a while. And I was only alerted to this a few years ago and started working with some folks. And eventually that led to a couple of interesting things happening. One, there was a ban on the collection of shellfish and beshtemare in Moreton Bay, Gwanda And the second thing, sort of almost in parallel, which I got involved with somehow, was oyster reef restoration, or as we know, shellfish reef restoration. Lots of things get get onto those reefs. But they're really important in terms of sinks for um, carbonate, for example, uh, for nutrients, uh, nitrogen, phosphates, phosphorus. So... These things are really, really important. And so now there's a big move to try and get oyster reefs and shellfish reefs back into Moreton Bay, Quandamooka. But the challenge was that the way the regulations were framed here by the government, that it was viewed as a development activity. So you had to pay a lot of money, go through a huge process to be able to do something that was a a very beneficial thing for the environment. But fortunately, over the past year or so, during times of COVID, while we've been sitting with green screens like this, the initiative from the folks that look after Moreton Bay Marine Park, um, we got involved in discussions with traditional owners um, who really are driving a lot of things now, and with other folks who have interests in the bay, including fishers, oyster growers, etc., and it now turns out that based on those discussions and the formulation of some, uh, some documents that are very clear that they're going to change the regulation so they will now allow shellfish reef restoration projects to go ahead in this wonderful area and in a marine park nonetheless so while it's been a challenging little period we've seen some great change and these are sorry about my crows That's another. My, my co, my COVID corvids, yeah, for those of you know Corvidi, which is the Latin name for the family to which crows belong. So they've been keeping me company. But through this process, we've managed to work together to get this big change. And shellfish reef restoration projects are ramping up, and you're going to see a lot of action in this area. And wherever you are in the world, you probably will have an opportunity, if you look carefully, to find some sort of, Habitat restoration project going, going on. Whether you're in an upper catchment of a river and there's some planting of riparian vegetation, which is the vegetation that grows alongside the banks of the river, which stops sediment going in, whether it's putting in um, log jams into the river to sort of support fish habitat and fish diversity, whether you're in the lower reaches, <clears throat> it might be cleaning urban streams or making waterways more complex or free of stuff. So I think, I think spirits should be higher now that we should work towards finding those opportunities to give back, find your local area, get involved, volunteer. the very least, what you can probably do is eat oysters (laughs) and then save the shells and give them to somebody that wants to put them into a reef. So, yeah, it's been a challenging time, but some things are looking up, and I think we are be good. But get out there, get involved. Terrific. Thank you all. Bye.
1: Next, you'll hear from longtime Fred of the podcast and previous guest, Dr. Luke Wilson. Luke is a GP based in Wellington who also serves as the board director at uh, Doctors for Nutrition. Here, Luke talks about the positive changes he's seeing in his work and how lifestyle factors can help both people and planet.
18: Well, I'm, I'm pretty positive about things, to be honest. Uh, I think that there's a lot going on, as I've talked about on the podcast before, um, things are a lot different from even when I started learning about this stuff and in the last, you know, I think it's been 10-11 years now that I've been plant-based I've seen some some really uh, positive changes, shifts in this direction so I'm I'm actually uh, really positive about things I'm really enjoying the role that I feel that I'm able to play in helping people to realize that not only can plant-based be very good for the planet but it's also a very easy thing and simple thing that you can do for you know the best thing that you can do for your health really so I'm just enjoying being able to help people out with that through you know what we're doing with Doctors for Nutrition and as, as you'll know, there were all the recipes and all that. There's just been a recipe ebook that we put out this year as well. So there's, there's th- those kinds of resources and we've got more stuff on the way. And as far as um, what I'm doing, I've been working with a different different group of people. Recently, I've been helping out with an eight-week challenge at a at a local gym here, and that's usually when I'm working with people with plant-based. A lot of the time, it can be people who are already plant-based, or um, and then they have some health issues that they need help with, or um, you know, perhaps people that are usually later on in their lives and they are. you know, having some health issues. Um, whereas with this group of people, it's, it was, uh, I thought it was really positive the, the number of, of them that were interested in doing this. We didn't have a lot of time to get things rolling with it, didn't have a lot of promotion or anything, but we've got 15 people in the group and, you know, basically none of them plant-based um, prior to this and uh all interested in giving it a shot and very interested I, I did a talk before we got people um you know during sort of the well actually the day before that I think they had to finish signing up for it so not not that much lead time uh and just in the presentation I just just went over sort of what it could do for them as far as their exercise and activity went and stuff that stuff that you know pretty well ben and um yeah they we, we got a lot of sign-ups from apparently from that people want it, who were just doing the regular nutrition that was associated with it um wanting to change over and things so you know i'm also doing you know monitoring on their you know some of their health stats and all that kind of thing too to make it more real for them um because even though none of them really have any health problems um you can still see some really good changes in some of your biomarkers that kind of stuff so that can be motivating for people so that's uh that's something I've been working on and and that leaves me with a lot of positivity because it's a group that I'm not usually working with and just the openness which I just don't think would have been there even a few years ago um when I got when I was getting started out with this it just seems like I think we've reached the point where there's that much momentum behind at least the plant-based movement that this is just something that's going to happen. And I, I see, see that as a very positive thing. We're getting messages out. You've had uh, Amy and Chris on the podcast from Milked Movie, um, and I got like a small part in that. So... Uh, we're, we're getting new ways that this information is getting out to more people and that really focuses a lot on the eco aspects as well and so yeah I, I'm I'm feeling very hopeful and positive about things and for me it's it's always a matter of change the things that you can change yourself and then you know whatever else is going to happen, uh, is just going to happen. There's, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So, um, I, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, about, you know, maybe where we're going to be in 2050 or, or with, with what's going on with the climate and things. And it's not because I don't think that's important. It's just, uh, I can, I can only do so much. So, um, worrying about it's not going to, Not going to get me anywhere i suppose so yeah that's kind of where i'm at with things i suppose
0: and the penultimate contributor for this episode is brad dixon Um, also another uh very early guest of ours in our first year he is the owner and director of everfit physiotherapy and coaching and author of holistic human 10 expansive wellness habits and uh, he certainly definitely gives us a lot of good pointers, good reminders of what we can all be doing um, to bring about positive change.
19: Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on, first of all, to talk about something I'm pretty passionate about and something I didn't realize I was passionate about until I began my expansive wellness journey around eight years ago. So the reason I started the journey to get well was after my uncle, um, died of bowel cancer and before he died he emailed and blogged the family about his experiences and how he realized that actually our lifestyles impact our health so we started to look into that my wife and i and realized that he was right you know what what you eat how you move how you think um how much sleep you get how how you handle stress impacts disease in your body so then we started, as a family, to change our lifestyles, mainly for, for personal health to start with. So we started looking at having a more plant-slanted diet. Uh, we started to look at recycling. We decided to look at packaging. We started to um, just look at the way that we used energy. Um, and then I realized that everything's connected. I think I had a little bit of an epiphany and, it, and I realized that, you know, look, as a physiotherapy uh, student, we're taught that the body is connected. Um, and then as you do more learning when it comes to holistic health and you look at um, ancient cultures and how they look at health, you realize that it's it's more than that. It's the body, mind, and soul is connected. And, and what's good for one is good for the other. And then you take it a step further and you realize, you know what, we're actually part of this planet we are nature and what is good for nature and the ecosystems is good for us and how can we strive to be healthy while our planet is literally becoming toxic due to our impact so that's i think where it it really struck me that we need to do a way better job of looking after our life support system our ecosystems our planet And, you know, what that aligns with healthy habits to help individual and community health as well. So, you know, and and that then gave me more purpose and more desire to really dig a little bit deeper into what expansive wellness actually means. And, you know, climate change, I think, is a divisive um, statement. And maybe we need to say something like biosphere breakdown. So a friend of mine, Paris Williams talks about biosphere breakdown. Climate change is just one symptom of our basically rupture of our relationship between humankind and the planet. And when we start, when we, sorry, stop treating the planet with respect, what happens is you get disease in the planet and then that affects us and creates more disease and, and so it's about looking at how we can then make those changes and, and so what we've done as a family and what i've done personally is little things just little things that actually help my health and then they have a massive impact on the planet and especially if more and more people did it so we're talking about cycling to work like me cycling to work for 3k with a 10 kg bike rather than a 1.5 tonne metal vehicle is so powerful i mean how much energy am i saving with it i'm burning a little bit of fat rather than burning fossil fuel which has taken millions of years to come about so we've got to start to look at how we use energy and be way more conservative with it so cycling to work is huge for me and i think we need new zealanders need to get away from this car centric mentality we need to start looking at hey can we can we walk can we can we bike? And if you live within 5 to 6k of work, really, there's no excuse that, you know, that, to look at trying to maybe bike. But the trouble is, our uh, cities aren't set up for that, you know, and they're quite dangerous. We need to make sure that we look at some of those ways that we can plan to encourage more people to get onto a bike. Another simple habit is having a cold shower. Now, in summer, this is easy. Now, in winter, I know it's a little bit harder, but if you can get the habit going in summer, I promise you it'll help. But having a cold shower, I, I take a cold shower every every morning. It's about one and a half minutes. The usual average shower in New Zealand is around seven or eight minutes. So I say 40,000 litres of water a year. 40,000 litres just for having a cold shower. And that cold shower benefits me. Um, and it also benefits the environment because I'm using less water and I'm using less energy to heat water. So that's another simple little switch that helps us and then it helps the planet and then things like fasting um you know just decreasing your um eating window during the day eating a little bit less junk crappy food um that's going to help us and the planet um you know looking at getting more sleep going to bed a bit a bit earlier so you're not watching as much screen time which takes energy and takes uh, away your potential to become a better person so all of this stuff stacks up so we need to talk to society and say, hey, you know, saving the planet is actually about saving us. And once we understand that those habits that improve our our wellness actually aligns with improving the community's wellness, and then it improves our planet's wellness, and it's it's, it's powerful, isn't it? I mean, I get excited just talking about it. And, and so that's why every client that comes in to see me, whether it be a coaching client or a physio client, I'm not going to say, hey, we're going to save the world. I'm going to say, hey, let's... Look at biking to work, it's going to improve your training miles. Let's look at having a cold shower because of cold thermogenesis and cellular repair and mitochondria efficiency. Let's look at and we look at it from a selfish point of view. When actually, you know what, it's actually helping the greater good as well. And so, you know, climate change, I think, is a divisive term. We need to think about saving the planet. Uh, we need to look at pollution mitigation. We need to look at we need to look at um, decreasing fossil fuel fuel use. Um, it's a, it's a biosphere breakdown that is happening all around us. And it's happening on the planet, it's happening in the society, we're getting more divisive. Um, we need to come together to be better as individuals, better as families, um, better as communities, um, and better as as a planetary human being you know, society. Because at the moment we are living in a way that's completely ruptured, it's distorted, it's creating massive amounts of disease, loss of opportunity, loss of hope. And so we've got to just change our thinking a little bit, um, and, and really come together on this.
0: Listening to our last four guests, past guests, all of them. The one thing that's also popped up here is, you know, we always talk about we need to save the planet, nature, nature's important. But we don't really appreciate it until we get out in nature. And that is, I guess, one of the the fundamental reasons why we established our campaign, Athletes for Nature. Uh, There's a lot of health benefits for being immersed in nature. But more so, once you get out, you start appreciating the importance of it, and then you also start to understand what's impacting it. And once you understand what's impacting, so it goes back to earlier lessons about awareness, creating awareness um then you're probably more uh enticed to take action to do something about it and that's either through you know a link between diet and the environment as luke spoke about um and ryan actually um or you know like ian and uh, spoke about it it's protecting that ecosystem and understanding what's impacting
1: absolutely i agree and I think a lot of people probably do I know in my local area one of the things that happened with the whole COVID fallout was there was an incredibly huge number of people every weekend getting out and going bushwalking and from that there's been you know a growing number of people who really are appreciating nature and, and doing more to be good stewards so yeah definitely has positive effects the more you immerse yourself
0: and another thing for me i think overall because we've got one more to come um but before we get on to that um you know we often say that gosh you know the world ahead for the young generation it's it's a lot for them you know they're growing into this this very fast changing planet um and they're going to have a lot to deal with when when you know they grow into this But one thing we kind of forget is we are the generation that are potentially going to be the most vulnerable because we'll be the old people and we'll be more vulnerable and more affected to heat waves, uh, poor air quality because of fires, um, displacement from flooding um, or sea level rising, depending where you live, um, the stresses of managing it all. And, you know, We're older, we're frailer. I mean, it's kind of scary to talk about that now. But, you know, we talk about bringing kids into this world and we kind of started off with this. But what about us? We're going to have a lot to deal with ourselves, even though we can kind of say, well, we're part of the problem. So it's kind of our our fault. But we are. We're not, it's not just our kids. I think it's all of us. They're going to have to, 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 to deal with this.
1: That's it. I mean, climate change is here and now, right? So we're already starting to feel those effects. Um, so question then are you feeling optimistic about the future after <laughs> listening to all these
0: stories? Look, you and I have had, and I've probably brought this this up more more often than not throughout this year where I've hit points where I'm kind of like, well w- what's the point? What is the point? you know what we're trying to achieve? because you know we've mentioned this, you know, there's a lot of good science. There's a lot of good people raising very good points, politicians, businesses, et cetera. They're not listening to it. They're choosing not to take their advice. We know they're listening. We know they are, but they're choosing not to. Um, and, you know, the little change that we're trying to inspire, what's the point? But it comes back to the that that whole hope. You know, sure, we've got a, a, a um, and some of our guests are avid listeners. Some of our guests listen to every show. Thanks, Brad Dalrymple and Luke uh, Wilson, and there's a bunch of you guys, and that we're so appreciative of it. Um, so we know that we're actually, we are inspiring a small group of people. Um, the whole point of then this year, our journey with dental intervention become more than just a podcast, to actually start doing outreach programs and launch some campaigns to bring about more change. That's my hope. You know, and and if, uh, you know, I've always said it with the pre love sports gear, you know, putting a smile on a few kids' faces because they're getting gear yeah, that's perfectly good, great condition, but it hasn't gone to the tip. But you're giving someone else a chance to do something great in their life, um, you know, because sports is a pathway to that, then we're doing our job. So, yeah, I do have my moments. Um, you know, the conversation with Jen, uh, and I spoke to this off-air after her uh, recording, made me realize that as a coach, the last couple of years with COVID and so on, it made me question whether I've done a good job with my athletes and looking after their well-being. John O. Lester opened up on our show a couple, a couple a few shows ago about the mental struggles he went through because he's so accustomed to being out and about and he's being locked up in his room, you know, lockdown. So, you know, it made me question a few things, but questioning, reflecting means we can do things better next time around. So, I'm hoping that our listeners get a lot of, uh, get a lot of hope from this, but get a lot of insights into the fact that they're not alone about how they feel. It's okay to feel down. It's okay to feel depressed. It's okay to feel angry. Um, but at the same time, uh, we should also look outward and, and there's a lot we can do. There's a lot you can do in your own very own backyard, your own community. We don't need to look far yep. to to try and bring change. So... Yeah, I, I have my moments, but I think we can do something.
1: Yeah, I, I would have to agree there. Like, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not exactly feeling uh, optimistic about the future, but I do feel hopeful. And through doing this podcast and, you know, also studying like tri- climate change adaptation and sustainability this year, I've been really privileged to interact with a lot of brilliant people. And passionate people people who are out there trying their hardest to go cultivate change Um, and when it comes to addressing climate change which is really just you know a symptom of our economic systems and how we interact with nature um, that task is going to involve a really big reckoning with ourselves and how we view ourselves and our place in nature and it's our collective actions and our stories and you know fostering these kinds of communities and connections that will give us the way out so i'm not optimistic because you know like we've just had this fallout from cop 26 26 which means there's been 25 cops beforehand and you know we're still needing it's more been action. 25
0: cop outs before <laughs> yeah. and this is cop 26 <laughs> that's it so not really yeah.
1: optimistic but i am definitely hopeful there's a lot of good people out there doing really good work
0: and look we said at the beginning this year you know last year was covid year and we were all anticipating you know this year is going to be a little bit better and 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 definitely i know queensland more so but you know for new zealand first half of the year we've had a good kind of back to normality and then it was back to lockdown so you know all these restrictions that we've all had to endure in different parts of the world um has not allowed us to create this communities and I know that's hard I know we've felt it we've had to delay the rollout of our Heal solution the workshops we've had to delay a lot of school visits that now it's been pushed out to next year and that's been frustrating really frustrating. so I know it's been challenging for all our listeners we've heard that from some of the contributors but there's so many ways of getting involved um, so don't lose hope and you know in the words of Corey, Um, Bradshaw, it's, it's, okay, maybe we can't make change, but let's make a little bit less shit. (laughs) Yeah. And I like that because it's being realistic that you can still make a positive change, but there's a bit of that element of reality. So at least it's not completely demotivating. There is a point. There is a point in doing something.
1: Grounded hope. That's it. Yeah.
0: So on that note, I think, you know, we did deliberate who would be the last person to wrap up the last contributor. Um, because every contribution has been, again, thank you to all of you. It's been so amazing to go through this journey. But we felt that uh, this last person is going to really wrap it up well. So Emma, I'll let you bring her in. And that's it from us. So thank you for your support. We really appreciate it. We'll be back with season three. Thank you.
1: So to round out our conversation, we close with some passionate words of wisdom from the wonderful Dr. Kate Wiley. Kate is a GP based in Adelaide, a member of Doctors for the Environment and the brains behind climate medicine. We've been incredibly fortunate to feature Kate previously on the podcast. Now, Kate covers a lot of ground here, but she leaves us with some really poignant and important questions as we stare down the barrel of this code red for humanity. Who are we and what are we if we don't act?
20: Hello, my name's Kate. I'm a GP. I work in Adelaide in a small group practice, and I'm basically a climate activist because I see climate change as a health issue. It's the greatest health problem of our time. And I'm not doing my job as a doctor if I'm not looking after that health issue, if I'm not trying to do everything I can to do something about climate change. For me, when you start talking about climate change as a health issue, the next thing, the next half of that sentence is, well, then how do I treat it? And I think we have to be looking at treatment. I know that the climate crisis is overwhelming. And, you know, I've read the IPCC reports and I find them to be hugely devastating, like hugely overwhelming and really hard. And I know that this is the decade for action and that if we don't act this decade, we're completely lost. And I refuse, to give up on my planet i refuse i'm going to do everything i can because if i don't try what am i you know like i am alive on the most important decade in human history i am alive where this is our last roll of our dice the last chance we have to kind of turn this ship around to, cont- to have a livable planet. You know, we know we've locked in 1.5 degrees. We know we're heading towards three degrees by the end of the century. And the scientists, who, you know, have been telling us for decades, you know, they're, they're ringing it out loud and clear. This is the decade we've got to rapidly decarbonize. We've got to stop destroying nature, stop chopping down forests. We've got to act, we've got to act now. And so what kind of human am I if I don't act? That makes me a monster if i know and i see it and i'm not doing something about it then i'm a monster and you know i think there's a lot of climate monsters out there i get so despairing about the um, inaction of you know my federal government various governments around the world and i just think god how who are you humans that you can know and watch and not do anything? And I can see that, you know, some people are overwhelmed and, you know, it is overwhelming. And that people can go, well, it's too big for me. Yeah, you know, I'm just one little human. What, what, what what can I do? But what I think is that everybody has to do what they can. You know, like, I can't control the behaviour of people in China, people in Argentina, people in Russia, I can't control that. But all I can do is I can control what I do. I can, I can make my own contribution. I can do the best I can. Because that's the only chance we have, is if every individual does everything that they can. And if we, you know, change that narrative of, you know, it's okay for humans to just trash the planet, to humans now have to protect their planet. And, you know, I see the impacts of climate in my work. One of the saddest, the most devastating things I see at work are young women choosing not to have children. You know, when a young woman comes in and says, I want contraception because I don't want to bring children onto this planet because we're, you know, of the disaster that's coming, that floors me. It's devastating. You know, and, you know, I look at my own child and think, what kind of parent am I if I know what's happening and I don't do everything I can? to save this person's future you know like oh and you know and you, we also it to the people that came before us you know like my mother my grandmother my great-grandmother all these people from time immemorial and for it to stop with us at this decade and so you know like you know maybe we live in interesting times right we live in the most interesting times but we all have to step up if we don't step up we're buggered and so let's try let's try as hard as we possibly can you know and I suppose that's the the ray of hope that I have is when I see people around me trying to you know when I when you hear of people doing good things when you hear of you know some of the great activists some of the great um, yes you know, people trying making good choices making good changes and I think okay Maybe they're they're having an effect, I'm having an effect, you're having an effect. Maybe we can all have effects together. And I think really the fundamental thing for all of us is to just think, what is it that I can do? And then do it, go as hard as you can. Because otherwise, you know, we're buggered, it's the end. We're facing extinction and extinction of everything you know like we can be cynical about humanity we can say you know like sometimes humans are pretty irritating right and we can all get a little bit cynical about that but you know what about all the rest of the beautiful creatures on our planet cats dogs dolphins the birds the bees you know all of that so yeah I suppose my fundamental thing is I have moments of overwhelming grief and I have moments of incandescent rage but I also have moments of hope and I hold on to my hope I really love that concept of active hope and yeah I just think what we all have to do is do everything we can find our strength find our capacity have a crack because it doesn't matter you know either you try and you fail or you don't try and you fail anyway. So, you know, the only way is to try. I think that's my piece. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you
17: subscribe and share it with your friends.